Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Welcome to Composite Two-Star Recruits. A USC recruiting podcast with a couple of one-star hosts, Chris 10K Trevino and Gerard Hurricane Martinez. Part of the USCfootball.com podcast family, the Cilantro Boys talk about everything from commitment breakdowns, game analysis, old recruiting stories, and of course, some unsubstantiated rumors. And now, here are your hosts, 18K and Gerald. Welcome back to Composite Two Star Recruits. I am your one star host, 10K Chris Trevino. And as always, I'm joined by my podcasting partner in crime, Gerard Hurricane Martinez. Gerard, there's a lot to talk about for this episode. And we have mentioned the last couple of episodes that there's not been a ton of stuff to talk about in a recruiting sense. And I feel like the recruiting gods have smiled upon us for this week because. There is plenty to talk about, all piled in for this episode. But I got to start off with the actual real headliner of the show. Gerard, you're no longer in the garage for today. There is no Garage Martinez for this episode. I think it might be the first time in this pod's history you haven't been recording from the garage. You seem to think differently, but you're out of the garage, baby. You're in the penthouse right now. Yeah, the Mosquitoes won. Um, last week, the mosquitoes literally won. They got me four times, twice through my pant legs. I said, (laughs) no, I'm done. done." Like I had off on, I was spraying raid them damn things. They are relentless. So I said, you know what? It's late. The, uh, the tribe is, uh, winding down. And because we're doing these later in the day, really in the evening, on a Wednesday, uh, you know, things are quieter. You know, we sometimes during the off season we're doing them earlier in the afternoon, and sometimes that's chaos around here. So we're going to try this out, and uh, I don't have to worry about the heat, don't have to worry about the cold, don't have to worry about uh, mosquitoes attacking me. I don't know what it is in my system that they love, but, man, they 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 kill me. They destroy that's me. cilantro, baby. They love that cilantro. I was literally but... like the, the second half. Of the podcast, I was already icing my mosquito bites. I've learned here living in the IE uh, with the invasive Asian tiger mosquito that you got to get ice on those suckers quick. And then uh, a little bit of cantaloupe. Uh, can, 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 uh, I don't know. Cantaloupe. 
No, uh, can, can, can of can of something lotion. Chamomile. Uh, no, uh, that you uh, that you rub on it, and then uh, and that that helps a lot, like tremendously. But um, I can't. Said, you know what? I'm done. I'm gonna go inside, and we'll see how it works. You know, uh, hopefully a, a better Wi-Fi signal and, and what have you too. So we'll see. From the comforts of uh, my office here with my giant gaming chair, and uh, you know, I can maybe maybe even uh, you know pull up uh, some some Xbox while uh, I listen to Chris talk because you know you talk so much, Chris. Sometimes you have these long rants that go on and on and I'm on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's just it's just the nature. <laughs> Of this beast. So you are officially retiring Garage Martinez for the season because, as you noted, we are going later. So, Gerard, do you have any words you want to say to Garage who's being shelved for the year? No, I don't. Okay. He doesn't. Come for Recruiting Talk. Stay for Mosquito Talk from Gerard Martinez as he tells you how to combat those little bloodsuckers. Gerard, I just want to say with the last couple of weeks, you know, we've been talking a lot and there hasn't really been much going on. And somehow we still managed to go like three and a half hours sometimes. So I don't understand how that works, but I do. I've already explained it. It's it's, (laughs) It's a matter of rambling, trying to make sense of what's not there as opposed to just addressing and analyzing what is there. And when the team is recruiting well, or there's just recruiting news just in general to assess Well, we talk about it. We break it down and we move past it. But when you're sitting there and you're trying to make content and you're trying to talk, it becomes a little bit of a conversational meandering down rabbit holes. So I think with these type of shows, it is much easier for us to kind of just look at what is there, analyze it and move on. The cupboard has been bare the last couple of episodes. It's like we were looking for something to eat. We were just uh, getting by on some ramen, Gerard. But the paycheck hit this week, and our stock, our stock, our fridge is stocked is what I meant to say. We have plenty of options to choose from, and we have a packed show. We have an unofficial visitor, five-star caliber, Brandon Baker, make it to campus. Of course, we're going to talk about that. We had an unofficial uh, visitor in a Stanford commit, Justin Taunau. We had a USC commit who's no longer playing football at his high school. We got kicked off the team. We're going to address that. We have a jam-packed USC recruiting angle for the Arizona game. Triple overtime, Gerard. I know you probably have some thoughts on that. We have some Friday Night Lights. I was finally back at a Friday Night Lights. We got USC, Notre Dame. It's Notre Dame week, Gerard. I'm going to South Bend for the first time. And, of course, there were some wild, wild games over the weekend. And we got a stacked list of listener questions. So, there is plenty to talk about, but Gerard, before I jump into all that, I have to give a shout out to the official sponsor of the Composite Two Star Recruits, Meredith Schlosser. You know her, you love her, the number one real estate agent in Los Angeles. We talk about getting a five star on campus. You can have a five star real estate agent in your Rolodex with Meredith Schlosser with over $600 million in sales and more than 200 five star Zillow reviews. That's 200 five star Zillow reviews. Meredith represents everyone from Jeannie Buss, the president of the Los Angeles Lakers, to a one-star like myself. Yeah, she helped me get into the house I'm in now. She's backed by a full-service team that allows her to service a wide range of clientele for rental, sales, and purchases. She has extensive experience with first-time home buyers and sellers. Most recently, Meredith was recognized by Wall Street Journal within the top 1.5% of agents in the nation. That's the nation 
not SoCal, not California, 1.5 of the nation. You can learn more about Meredith and her team at www.meredithschlosser.com. That is S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R. You can check out her business Instagram at Meredith Real Estate. That's at Meredith Real Estate to check out all the listings and postings that she has going on. Seriously, if you're thinking about selling, buying a house, you have to go with her. She's the best. I I vouch for her 100%, five stars, whatever you need. 10K says, go to her. Gerard, cold open time. As you know, we usually like to start with the biggest thing, and that is a big man on campus, Huntington Beach, California, three-star offensive lineman, Justin Taunau, who took a kind of a low-key official visit with USC. If you recall, we talked about him in the summer. He was supposed to come in for an official visit, kind of that end-of-the-month catch-all weekend that it ended up getting canceled. Just about everyone who was scheduled for that week ended up getting canceled. But now, here's Justin taking his official visit for Arizona versus USC. Six foot six, 285-pound offensive tackle out of Huntington Beach. Number 492 overall in the 24-7 sports composite. Number 31 in their rankings. Number 28 offensive lineman in our 24-7 sports rankings. He is listed as offensive tackle, but this kind of says interior offensive lineman. He is a tackle to me. I went out to see him during the summer. Six foot six. It's a legit size, 285, 90 pounds. Does have the length to play on the edge. Again, he was a Stanford commit. This is not his first visit during the season. He actually came for USC's win over Stanford. I saw him on the sideline. Was there with a couple of teammates. And he popped up again for Arizona, rocking that gold lanyard, which tells me official visit. Went ahead and we checked it out, confirmed it. He's on his official visit. So USC sneaking one in for a potential flip. And Gerard, it is flip season. So you won't, you know all about that. Yeah. And I think this is one that we anticipate will potentially be a flip um, going down, taking the unofficial visit when USC played Stanford, probably USC's most complete game of the season. And so that was a great form for USC to show their offense, to show their development with the offensive line, uh, running the football, passing the football. It was a very balanced game for USC. And, and this is a kid that out of the gates probably would have committed to USC over the summer if mm-hmm. he would have taken that official visit, whether it had been the June 16th weekend, which originally was what we were hearing uh, when it came to scheduling that visit for USC. And then it eventually got backed up to that last weekend of June, which, as you stated, a bit of a catch-all type of weekend for USC. And that shows you kind of like back burner type recruiting. USC got a couple other commitments, the most notable being from Modesto four-star offensive tackle, Manasseh Atete. And I think once he decommitted, USC needed to pivot. And they already had some guys that they liked and probably made some phone calls trying to figure out who they could get on campus, who they could get unofficially on campus. And obviously with Taunau, that was one kid that already had a lot of interest in USC, but because they end up canceling that visit, he commits to Stanford. Oh, well, guess what? We're going to play Stanford. So he comes down for that unofficial visit. They blow Stanford out. And that's when you say, okay, let's talk about maybe setting up an official visit like we were going to during the summer. Yeah, we filled up. It was one of those things, first come, first serve, but we really still like you. We have a good relationship with you. And I think, obviously, Stanford's not having a very good season this year. Um, there's 
a lot of push for him to end up going to USC. So as you stated, uh, probably an offensive tackle. You know, he's got that body. There is some argument that maybe he would be better playing inside, but I think he has enough length and height that that's where he ends up playing. And certainly with the loss of Atete, that's what you're looking to replace within the class. USC came in to the summer wanting to take three to four offensive linemen. They've got three commitments now, but because they had four at one point, you know, I think they want to be able to replace that. And it looks like Justin Taunau is going to be that player. No relation to Jonah Taunau, who was at Narbonne High School, who was a recruit that USC went after, ended up at Oregon, really hasn't done a whole lot at Oregon. But there's he actually no medically retired relation. Yeah, there you go. Um, so yeah, there's there's no relationship there. Uh, just the the same uh, last name um, to what we know, and um, it sets up you know kind of looking at the board and looking you know where USC is recruiting wise with offensive linemen. The other indicator that they were going to go in this direction is that they didn't have a bunch of additional scholarship offers. So they were doubling down on their board and feeling like okay. There's still guys here that we've already recruited. We already have a relationship with. We may have turned down, but we think we can pivot and get back into that recruitment. And, you know, Justin Taunau was probably at the top of the list because he was one of the few guys that actually had an official visit schedule that didn't take that official visit. So, like you said, kind of a low key, I don't want to say last minute, but we were hearing, and certainly this comes into play when you're dealing with a recruit that is committed elsewhere talked about this before, you know, you don't want to burn bridges. You know, you don't want that coaching staff to feel like they're being slighted. You know, they took your commitment. They showed you that love. They made you a priority over the summer, whereas USC didn't. So you don't want to turn around, take an unofficial visit to USC, USC spank Stanford. And then you're on record saying, oh yeah, you know, I really have a lot of interest in USC. I really still like them. They have great education and they've got a a need there and off to tackle, blah, blah, blah. Oh, but I still like Stanford too. It's just one of those things that you want to kind of say, hey, listen, I'm still committed to Stanford and I'm committed to Stanford till I'm not committed to Stanford. And so that's why I don't think we heard a whole lot from him and from sources about the movement behind the scenes with the official visit. So he kind of pops up on campus, but it's not really surprising. I thought, you know, this would be something that would happen uh, either like homecoming or possibly, you know, wait later to the UCLA game. But I think with USC, it was one of those situations where they probably talked about and they said, well, who else are we going after at this point? Like who else was on the top of our board? Who else can we get on campus? You know, what kind of work is it going to take? What kind of effort is it going to take to get back in other recruitments? You know, when we've got Justin Town out there down at Huntington Beach. So I think it was, you know, somewhat low hanging fruit, but kind of an obvious thing and a player that USC liked early on, just obviously not quite as much as other players because they took those commitments and they made sure those guys visited first so they could sort of know where they were, where they stood. And as I said before, you know, that's where the sort of surprise commitment from Manasseh Atete comes in. And that shifted the board a lot. And and this is, you know, one of the reasons why I think the strategy of pushing for a certain number and getting that number and then just closing off ranks is a bad idea because, you know, Manasseh Atete also kind of shifted things with DeAndre Carter to a certain extent as well. And so, you know, you're you're thinking you're somewhere that you're not with your offensive line uh, recruitment in a particular class. Uh, and 
you know, putting all your eggs in that basket, if you will. That's kind of been a little bit of a theme with this coaching staff. There's been some guys where, you know, they want to recruit certain players and it's like, okay, if we can dot those I's and cross those T's, we're done. We're locking it down. We're not going to take any more commitments. You know, Isaiah Garcia, uh, the big offensive tackle from Utah, that was another instance where we heard a lot of stuff that, you know, he was really wanting to go to Oregon or USC, but they both filled up over the summer. So they shut things down. And if you do that, you really have to have a good read on the situation. You've got to feel really, really confident about, yes, we're going to shut down those recruitments. Those guys are committed and they're committed throughout the season. And obviously that didn't happen with the Tete and that shifted a bunch of things and, uh, you know, caused uh, USC to cancel some visits, to move on from some guys, uh, maybe to not communicate as much with some guys going out. Um, coming into like the season, you know, at the end of the summer, I think really in hindsight, I mean, it's, it's a lesson of you just got to take all the guys you like and it doesn't matter how many numbers at that point in time, especially during the summer. You know, if, if USC still had those four at this point in time, then you start to think, okay, check back in with those guys that are committed, you know, kind of get a, a, a temperature check of the committed recruits. And even now, I mean, I, I think there's still got to be something done uh, to that extent with the committed class once you get over this sort of run of Notre Dame, Oregon, Washington. That's this this is this is where the rubber meets the road for USC 2023. This is the 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 bulk of the schedule that you really kind of have to focus on. What do you look like on the back end of this part of the schedule? Because if you lose a couple games, it's gonna shift some things. There's potential you could see some more decommitments. You know, you kind of have to assess where you are, um, but, you know, it would make more sense as you get into that part of the year. That's when you start to say, OK, now at, are we at this point? Do we feel confident enough with certain players commitments that we can kind of start peddling back who we're talking to and start thinking about numbers? Are we uh, too full at a certain position. You know, do we have too many guys? Because the other thing that you come up against too towards the end of the season, you have to start looking at your own roster. You have to self-evaluate and figure out who could potentially transfer out and change the numbers drastically. You know, and you, some guys you're going to be able to do that with, and you can say this kid's not playing a lot. We could sit down and have a conversation with them. Say, listen, we think you've got some talent, but we think that you would be better off going to another school where you're going to get more opportunity. We've got guys in front of you. They're playing well. We don't see a lot of playing time for you next season. And that sort of takes care of itself. Uh, but then there's other guys that you might like and you kind of want to keep them around, but they decide they want to go somewhere else. And so you kind of got to scramble a little bit for those numbers and you might be able to find them in the portal. But it, if you had a class of, Let's say all of a sudden you've got five offensive linemen and you're thinking to yourself, well, we only need four as you're coming in in the summer. Well, all of a sudden, now you need five. It's like, oh, well, we've got five. So cool. We don't, you know, there's no shifting that needs to happen. There's no phone calls that need to be made. It all kind of takes care of itself. So I think that in the future is probably from a strategy standpoint, the better way to do it, because then you're not putting all your eggs into Manasseh Tete or some other player and going, okay, we're good. And you're in June and all of a sudden July, it's all changed. And you've got guys that would have committed to you that you liked. Um, or in this case, you're you're lucky that you have a player locally that you liked that you're able to still pivot on and get into their recruitment and potentially get a commitment, even though he's committed somewhere else already. 
and just to steer it back a little bit more to Justin, when I went out to see him, the vibe I got was that very pro USC, as you mentioned, would have probably been a Trojan if they had gotten that official visit. But also, as he pointed out, he comes from a big family of USC fans. So they were very excited when he got the offer. He thought Lincoln, talking to Lincoln Riley when he got offered was very cool. Lincoln Riley talked to his mom. She was very happy. And again, he pointed out multiple times that his family is full of USC fans. So I think we would be pretty uh, – we ha- we would have put Justin in our closer category, uh, assuming that he would have gotten on campus for that official visit at the end of June, Gerard. Definitely, for sure. And um, like I said, you know, things can kind of change quickly on you on the recruiting trail. And we're really not into flip season yet. You know, we, we – It's pre-flip season. Yeah, we're still a few weeks away from really seeing that feel of, okay, the season plays out a certain way, teams start to lose, and then there start to be more questions that come up about coaching staffs and who's going to be there next year, you know, who might take a job somewhere else. And that is what really sort of sparks a lot of that talk and then a lot of the guys that decide they're going to decommit and go elsewhere. And then there's other aspects of of the recruitment that changed to some extent too. So um, right now, you know, at, at a, quite a few of these positions, <clears throat> excuse me, USC is really kind of focused on the guys they've already recruited. There's not a lot of new names on the board. Um, there's really only a couple positions here where we've seen USC kind of expand their target list a bit since the summer, you know, linebackers is one of them. Um, defensive back has been another uh, where you know USC has had additional scholarship offers go out and kind of sort of with the edge rush position we've seen some additional scholarship offers and that always signals that there's not a lot of confidence in the board as it sits so we have to add some more options and try to get ourselves into some conversations with some players that maybe we weren't recruiting hard or we weren't recruiting at all uh, going into the summer where you know recruiting and commitments um are so there's there's so many of them. I mean, it's such a huge part of the process now. Each cycle, you know, we've become accustomed to so much of the class being committed by the time you get out of the summer. And so, you know, this is something that you know with USC has become new uh, over the years because traditionally USC, you know, back with Pete Carroll, they always back ended a lot of their heavy hitters in the recruiting class. And because it's over by December and you don't have a lot of official visits during January, you can't really do that. And so you're going to have maybe if you're playing really well and you've got some momentum, a handful of guys that you could potentially flip uh, in November going into December. Uh, But you have to have some momentum there. And now with NIL, I mean, that's still the question. We're trying to figure out how much impact does that have in A, retaining commitments and B, being able to sway commitments. Because we know right now, I mean, USC has lost out on a lot of those players uh, like Manasseh Atete, where the overriding factor in the recruitment was NIL. Um, if, you know, we're trying to figure out, can you flip those players where you're not using the NIL factor? It's more about the season. It's more about the coaching. It's more about, hey, listen, do you want to come win national championships? And so if USC is in that position, we have yet to see, you know, how much impact that can have uh, with this still being 
um, kind of the infancy of NIL and that being a factor that, you know, you have to kind of battle against. Speaking of sort of maybe NIL motivations, let's transition to a prospect that we've talked about plenty on this podcast over the last couple of months and a prospect who is going to, if expected, if it holds up, come off the board on October 16th. I'm talking about Gaithersburg, Maryland, three-star edge, Jalen Harvey, who, again, we have talked about numerous times on this podcast. USC was a big contender for him when they offered, you know, got him on campus for the summer official visit, uh, said he was going to commit uh, before his senior year. That didn't happen. Delayed it. Delayed it. Ended up taking a unofficial visit back to USC for a game day. We thought, okay, maybe now he's going to make his commitment now that he's gotten that out of the way. And then he uh, went ahead and took unofficial visits to Maryland and Penn State, his other two finalists. But it seems now Jalen Harvey is ready to make a commitment. He is slated for October 16th. That is early next week. I believe it is Tuesday, but don't don't quote me on that. Tuesday or Monday, one of those days. But Jalen Harvey, three-star edge rusher who USC – you know, all things considered, you know, we felt was in a good position to land him back in the summer. But, you know, it's been back and forth, back and forth. USC, Penn State, Maryland trying to make a make push in there. But Penn State has been the projected leader for quite some time. But Jalen Harvey, Gerard, finally ready to come off the board. We think. We think. Unless we there's think. Yes, we think. Good, good, good addition. More delay. Um you know, the last we actually heard of him, he was on Twitter tweeting at Deion Sanders talking about how good defensive backs need a good pass rush. And it's so that true. was it's true. He's not wrong, Dred. Kind of a, a strange um, turn where you thought, OK, so is he trying to drum up more interest? Does he want to expand his options when we're thinking he's down to three? Uh, I know that, you know, Florida and Tennessee had been kind of sniffing around his recruitment a little bit particularly Tennessee, but as it stands right now, we think it's still just a three-team race, Maryland, Penn State, and USC. Now, with Penn State, they have been the projected leader for a while. I think certainly him coming off his USC visit, there wasn't a ton of optimism there. It didn't feel, talking to sources, like he necessarily gave anybody any winks or nods or, or, or a feeling like, you know, USC was the team to beat even coming from that visit. Um, and you have that extension of his recruitment and going back to Penn State where he goes to the whiteout game. And I believe they're playing Iowa and they dismantled Iowa. And there's a lot of optimism coming from the Penn State sources that you talk to. And, and that's just sort of a face value. Duh. You know, I mean, he went out to USC. I think that was was that the opener for San Jose State. I can't remember if he came out for San Jose State or Nevada, but it's certainly environment wise. It didn't. I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out with what you were going to see at uh, at, at Penn State, you know. And so um, it's one of those things where I, I think just the assumption there was Penn State was the team to beat, and even some of the folks that are covering the Maryland football program felt like Penn State was the team to beat. Checking in with some folks this week, I think there's some cautious optimism that USC is still there. One of the interesting things is like kind of conflicting information is sort of where his mom stands with things right now. I've heard 
that and this is more coming from Jalen himself that mom wanted to keep him close to home. She was a little wary of, uh, you know, cross country. And, and there's a lot of people in his circle that would like to see him play closer to home. And that's where Maryland comes into play. You know, Maryland actually has a place at the table because they are the hometown favorite. And so that sort of reinforces that there's people in his circle that do want to see him in closer home. And Penn State was a little bit of a compromise in, in such a way because, you know, it's obviously not that far away from home, but it's a, a little more uh, high profile football program uh, than, than Maryland is. But the vibe I always got was Jalen, if he had his druthers, he would have committed to USC already. Um, more recently, there's been a little bit of talk like, you know, mom actually likes USC, but that came along with the conversation that USC had the best NIL presentation. And again, we've seen USC lose out on enough recruits here where NIL was an underlying factor, um, whether it was an underlying factor, which was spoken on publicly, or it was things that were said behind the scenes. Nevertheless, it was a recruitment where they ended up, you know, second, if not third in the conversation. So when I start to hear, well, you know, the, the factor that's really leading him to USC would be NIL. You know, you obviously have to take that with a grain of salt and feel a little bit skeptical as to whether that's going to be something that's going to hold up, you know, in his recruitment. So right now, like I said, the read on this side of the country is there's some cautious optimism there, which, again, I was a little surprised at hearing, um, seeing that one of the other things that has happened, you know, kind of since he's taken his unofficial visit to USC, speaking of Jalen Harvey, is that USC went and offered Shreveport Evangel Christian Edge rusher Gabriel Relaford, who really reads as a plan B for him. Now, Relaford is committed to Texas A&M. He has been unresponsive, uh, trying to get an interview with him, talking to him about his commitment to A&M and whether, you know, he's solid with A&M. Um, you know, it's just basically, hey, you know, uh, really excited about the USC offer. You know, that's that's a blessing and kind of that's it. Again, a committed recruit doesn't want to start talking up another school when he's supposed to be loyal to the commitment that he has with Texas A&M. But nevertheless, you're sort of connecting the dots there, you know, six, two, six, three, three fifty. They they play a little different, but body types are very similar. So you kind of felt like, okay, so USC's confidence level there with Harvey post unofficial visit is kind of showing through a bit. So that's uh, again, I'm, I guess part of the surprise is to, well, you know, I mean, they, there's a feeling there that, you know, perhaps they, they, have they could potentially be able to land him uh with you know basically you know four or five days here um before he's going to make that announcement if he keeps that date as stated he's moved dates around before and um you know the confidence on the other side of the country i think again it right now i mean as of like right now this week i think it's just more of well you know took his last visit to penn state you know obviously had a big Penn State, they played really well. They've been recruiting him hard. They've been recruiting fairly well. Um, another school sort of like, you know, at the, that would real early on at the top of the recruiting rankings, you know, kind of over the summer. And it was partly because of quantity and not just quality. But you've seen that just like with Notre Dame and some of the other programs that going into the summer and even during the summer had high recruiting rankings. They're not 
playing that NIL game super aggressively, they start to fade because you get into July and August and the big boys say, okay, here we go. Now we have our board settled up and we have guys that, you know, have officially visited and this is how we're going to do things. And you see, you know, the SEC schools shoot up to the top and some of those other schools that, you know, even now, you know, you're seeing schools that they're losing games and landing commitments, you know, the a day later, it's like, Oh, part of the five families, they seem to be able to, uh, to, 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 to lose games badly and still land uh, top recruits. It's uh, kind of an amazing thing. USC wins games and blows teams out, and it's like they're getting decommitments. Um, that's the uh, the sort of um, state of recruiting these days, the sort of wild, wild west, unregulated, uncontrolled, um, you know, NIL impacts on recruiting. Gerard, you were right. It was the season opener against San Jose State. So obviously – that crowd isn't exactly competing with a Penn State whiteout, unfortunately. But it was, you know, a win, though. It was a win, though. It was a win. It wasn't quite as pretty of a win as the mm-hmm. next week. Mm-hmm. Nevada, they were a little more dominant defensively against Nevada. Uh, San Jose State was kind of uh, the first red flag, or maybe the second red flag if you're not counting the spring game. But the first red flag where you saw – uh, several big plays given up by the defense and, and what have you. Um, but just experience-wise, you know, he was out here. <clears throat> he's hanging out with uh, one of the co-founders of California Power, uh, his mother, and, you know, got to kind of see, um, you know, the game day environment, which is, you know, the big difference between taking that official visit during the summer and taking uh, a visit during the season when, you know, you've got people on campus and you've got the tailgating. And they experienced all that, you know. And, again, the feedback from that visit was kind of ho-hum. And, um, you know, if you're even, you're leaving, or you're even, he's leaving uh, after a visit (laughs) like that. Um, That was the sense, I think. And, um, you know, what has been the difference between, you know, now and then, or even post Penn State visit and uh, this commitment coming up? Uh, We'll see. Again, the NIL talk to me is a bit of a red herring, and that always gives me this sense of, uh, I mean, are we going to just see something here at the the last minute where uh, ends up changing, and you know he does end up going to Penn State? Uh, I would not be uh, obviously surprised. I, I would be, I still would be more surprised. I think with USC being the pick, uh, if I'm being totally honest. Um, but be totally honest. Be totally honest. There's um, there is a sense that you know it's like well, I mean we think that we're in it and uh, it's not a foregone conclusion sort of thing. But you know the reads have been a little inconsistent. I mean we've seen emojis left and right that have been like farts in the wind and you know they they come and they go and that's just uh, you know Lincoln Riley and the coaching staff having conversations with those players and those players saying hey coach oh yeah I want to be a Trojan and you know, it's like, oh, that's great. You know, that's awesome, man. I'm, I'm really pumped up. And then, you know, a week goes by and they go and commit somewhere else. And that just uh, that's been something that's happened several times um, in the last cycle or so. So, you know, you take it with a grain of salt. You know, it's sort of uh, the silent commitment thing. And um, there's a lot of maneuvering going back and forth. And like I said, the, the talk that uh, USC, you know, it's like NIL is like this big factor for him. And, and you know, that might be what is the deciding factor in his recruitment 
does give me a bit of pause. It does make me think like, okay, there's some leveraging there. Is that is that being said and being leaked for our own benefit, but before the the benefit of a deal or something? You know, like trying again to get schools sort of, um, you know, bidding against each other. I I don't know. And we went into this in another podcast. I don't know how that gets settled how that gets worked out i don't know if there's this gentleman's agreement where collectives or coaching staffs can reach out to each other and say hey listen you know this is what we're hearing i just wanted to let you know you know this is not true or what have you and and not have it spiral into this whole thing where you know you've you've got schools basically bidding against themselves um <laughs> i don't i don't know how that all gets uh figured out right now i mean it's just completely i feel like some of these schools and some of these boosters are, are probably in the dark and, you know, people are trying to take advantage of that situation. It's like, you know, what do you value this recruit at? And do you feel like it, that, that is worth so much on the football field, you know, cause at the end of the day, that's what you're projecting. And we see at the NFL level, the pro level, how that works, but there's so much more transparency with it. You know, it's a business model that works that everybody sort of can check in with each other. You've got certified agents, you know, and there's still a lot of negotiation and there's still a lot of tactics that go on behind the scenes of who's doing what, but the extent of, of, of it is with college football right now. I mean, I just don't know how, you know, <laughs> that's the question. Like, how do you know, who is, you know, offering this much and that much. I mean, can you just rely on word of mouth from the circles of a recruit? You know, yeah, they offered me uh, $1.3 million for this. And, you know, when I enroll or maybe even before I enroll, whatever the case may be, and, you know, you're you're a competing school. It's like, okay, well, you just go back to your your boosters and say, well, we got to do better than, you know, 1.2. Or we got to have 1.2 or what, you know what I mean? Like that that whole thing. And trying to figure out, you know, are we uh, are we bidding against ourselves here, or are we actually, you know, in a competition? And and if so, what is this player worth? How how much can this be supplemented by actual brand deals, etc.? You know, th- th- all those conversations have to happen. And, and it's like right now, I just don't know if these collectives are built to be able to do that. I mean, some might be. You know, some you might have a group of businessmen who are involved in negotiation, you know, they know how things work. They set up a sort of system communication wise and just like internally being able to figure out, uh, talk with their coaching staffs, you know, figure out what the value of each position is and do it that way. But I got a feeling that most don't, most are just, you know, it's like, Hey man, can you write a check? Cause this is what we need. And it's like, well, who says we need that coach? <laughs> that's, that's the end all and be all of it. And, um, you know, I can see why it's just uh, it's it's not sustainable. You know, that that model is not sustainable. All right, Gerard, we were talking about Harvey, a East Coast defensive front player. So that is actually a good transition to our next talking point, which is another East Coast defensive front player and actually a USC commit. And what is becoming the wildest, weirdest off-season story or season story for the USC recruiting class. And that is the three-star defensive tackle, David Pale Pale, out of Landisville, Pennsylvania. His senior year is over because he's been reportedly kicked off his high school team of Hempfield High for disciplinary 
reasons. So this popped up this week, I think actually today, but there was a uh, a little, not even a story written about it in the Lancaster Online, which is, I guess, their local area paper. It was just a notebook style post, and it was just like two sentences about Pale Pale being kicked off the team. Hemfield coach George Eager has confirmed to the N to the LNP that USC recruit and all-state two-way interior lineman David Pale Pale is no longer on the Black Knights roster because of disciplinary reasons. And that's it. That's all that is reported in an actual like uh, paper online uh, outlet. But there has been some stuff popped up on social media, mainly an Instagram post by Pale Pale that basically says their team sucks and they knew, need a new head coach. They're two and five this season. They finished nine and three last year. So obviously wasn't off to a great start. Looks like they were not going to make the playoffs. His senior year was is going to be an uneventful one. But yeah, I mean, just went ahead and trashed his head coach on Instagram. Gerard, got to weigh in here. Have you, what, what are your thoughts on this? And have you ever covered a USC commit who's been kicked off the team their senior year? Um, the top of my head, I don't think so. Granted, this Granted. is far, far from the craziest story I've heard <laughs> about a USC commit. Uh, Quandarius Davis. Quan Davis. Oh, Quay Davis. A commit out of Skyline High School in Dallas. And I won't get into the details, but my goodness, it pales in comparison to this. Uh, this is a kid being immature and being frustrated, certainly. Sure. And uh, that's one of those things where, you know, people are going to question character. They're going to question, you know, his commitment to the football team. And being a football player, you understand you take the good with the bad. And there's a certain amount of loyalty you have to have to the guys around you. And it's very easy to kind of look around as an all-state football player, a guy committed to USC, and the guys around you are not playing at that level and you're losing. And that happens to a lot of high school football players. There's a lot of high school football players that are carrying their team and they play against some other decent teams. You know, those teams are going to try to take them out of the game. And then you have to rely on all those other players and when they're not playing at the level you're playing there, you know, there's a lot of frustration there from what I understand, you know, he, he made that comment and was almost immediately, you know, kicked off the football team. But I guess that wasn't necessarily shared with him personally. Um, it was talked about and um, there were some comments made uh, privately, you know, behind the scenes after uh, David had, uh, put that out there on Instagram and um, it got kind of back around to him before there was a, a, a meeting with you know, his parents and the coaching staff. And so there was some, some definite, you know, conflict there, but at that point in time, I think he was already off the football team. So <clears throat> at this point going forward, uh, it's just a matter of him preparing for college. You know, he's got to train up. The question that I've gotten is, you know, does USC drop him? You know, does USC look at this and say, oh, this guy, this kid is uh, doesn't have the character for our locker room, so on and so forth. The initial reaction I got was that, um, you know, that wasn't going to be 
the the approach, uh, at least early on. I, I don't think the coaching staff as a staff have had a conversation about it yet. You know, I don't think there's been any determination one way or the other about it yet. I think they're still kind of trying to get details, maybe trying to get both sides of the story. I would be surprised personally if that was the the results of, of this. Again, I think there's immaturity here, but you know, there's legal issues that go on with recruits and things that happen and they get suspended. And certainly this was more personal. And I think the coach probably felt like this was personal and that's why they kicked him off the team. And it wasn't like, Oh, you, you know, you had a DUI and you're not even 21 or, you know, you, uh, you know, got into a car crash and then they found a bunch of weed in your car or there's a lot of stuff that goes on from an yeah. illegal standpoint where kids, you know, quietly end up not playing for a few games and nobody really hears about it. And then you have to look at that from a, a college coaching staff and like this kid's committed. He's got some problems. He's got some issues. He's got some immaturity things, but he's also got like legality issues that he's got to clear up. This is not one of those cases. This to me just speaks of, immaturity just flat out you know and hey listen he's a 17 18 year old kid he made a stupid comment and i'm sure um you know the way things played out i don't know if they were played out and and you know either sides really did themselves any favors and so kind of this is the result you know it's sort of like this public thing and um i just don't think usc really makes any kind of moves here I think Sean Nua um, has a good connection with uh, David Palepale. I'm sure there'll be some conversations there. Um, this is a chance to teach up. And, you know, beyond all of that, you know, feel good sort of, hey, you know, this is a kid that just needs to be coached up and he and he needs to have a, a strong motivational uh, figure in his life um, that could set him on the straight path, so on and so forth. Beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> it's also – the bottom line here for USC and USC defensive line recruiting right now is more in the category of beggars than they are choosers. They don't have a lot of talent here to pick from. They're not just looking for, you know, they don't have this, this lineup queued up and they can just say, Oh, you know, we're, we're going to go ahead and drop this guy. And there's like four other guys there that they can choose from at this point in time, you know, USC needs some talent. They need some big guys on the defensive line that can play and can compete um, for playing time early on in their careers. So I think that also comes into play with something like this too. It uh, Even if this was a situation where it was uh, more egregious and, you know, maybe he punched his coach or something like that. Cause we've, we've heard lots of, you know, issues uh, that have come up over the years where players are, are, are out of line. I mean, Zach Evans was a five-star running back at North shore and, you know, he got in all kinds of issues uh, there and ended up a guy that a lot of schools didn't want to recruit. But but those were much more. There were some anger issues that were involved with that. Um, there was some stuff that went on there. And again, maturity. Um, but there's 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 definitely a bit more that goes into the background, how a player handles his recruitment, the people he surrounds himself with. You know, there's a lot more there that people don't know that determine whether a college coaching staff looks at that situation and says, you know what, we don't want to bring that guy into our locker room. You know, that that could be a problem for us. That, that could all of a sudden turn the tide in the locker room against us. Um, I don't think that's the issue here. 
Um, I think the issue is immaturity, social media, and a, and a guy just going out there and, and not realizing what he was really saying and how it was going to uh, undermine, you know, what his coaching staff there at the high school is doing. And again, on the other side of the fence, you know, the argument is, okay, so sit down and have that conversation with the young man and his family before you start reaching out to media and talking to other coaches and other players on the team and saying, well, you know, screw him. He's off the team. He doesn't want to be on this team. He doesn't like this team. He thinks we suck. Well, we're going to suck together. You know, we're in this for the long haul. He can go, uh, you know, find somewhere else to play sort of thing. Um, probably the best approach for that staff is to, to, to have that conversation with him first and his parents first. And then, you know, that, that plays out, but it didn't really work out that way. Timing wise, whatever. I'm sure like, you know, just, you know, David Polipale had that sort of, um, you know, mistake and, and, and uh, bad judgment to, to put that out there on Instagram. You know, it's probably some bad judgment, even on the coaching staff, just to react that way. They took it personally and you know, that's, that's how that all played out. So that's, that's my take on that situation. Yeah, I'm in the same boat with you. I don't think that he's going to be dropped for, from this class because, as you mentioned, USC is kind of light on some defensive linemen, and he's six foot three, 305 pounds, and was a pretty good-looking player when we saw him up close over the summer. So I would say that they're going to work that out and you know treat this as an opportunity to uh, coach him up, as you say. And I find it interesting because Shotgun actually did go see him recently, so he's one of the last people... See him play in high school. And that is going to be a very interesting in-home visit for Sean Nua down the line, Gerard. Yeah, but I think, you know, with Sean Nua, you know, that is, again, he really plays that role well. I think, it, you know, he has that sort of father figure, um, very locked in with his guys in that way. And you wouldn't see this type of thing happening, you know. Um, I th- again, I, I I think it's actually like one of those things. It's like it, it can help, you know. You can kind of turn it into a good thing uh, and and show, you know, this is the reasons why you you don't get on Instagram, you don't get on social media, and talk about team problems and, and kind of just break it down for them and, and show them because I just I, I think you know it was one of those sort of selfish situations where. He wasn't thinking about that. And, and maybe, you know, he he's uh, come to that school, you know, he transferred in actually from Alaska. And so it's not like he's, you know, born and raised in that community either. So, you know, his ties and sort of the 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 overall feel, you know, I, you know playing youth football there, you're kind of programmed in a certain way. Like, OK, and, it, and it's like regardless of whether it's a good season or a bad season. You know, it's harder to cut bait when you have those um, ties into a community. He doesn't necessarily have that. So I think that was also why it was probably easy just to say, you know, we suck. We need a new coach. Anybody out there uh, know how to coach football sort of thing. Um, but I, I, I again, I, I think that Sean Nua, this is a perfect uh, situation for him to, to step in and, 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 you know, teach him up and, um, you know, the, the main thing is making sure that he keeps his body up. He keeps training hard. Um, you know, he figures, you know, he's he's got only got a couple months, but a couple months, you know, it can, can get away from alignment really quickly too. So got to make sure that, you know, you stay disciplined and you're staying uh, on point. So when you uh, graduate, and I think he's, or was, um, I wouldn't be 
shocked if he transferred out of that school together. I think that's probably what's going to happen next. Um, making sure that he's got all his credits in order and everything so he can graduate early because that could be a bit of an issue. You know, there's certainly going to be some hard feelings there um, just with the school itself. You know, it, it just, you know, it's just one of those situations that's unfortunate. Um, but again, in, in the grand scheme of things, comparing it to other things that have happened. And, and again, you know, going even just with some guys that have been committed to USC and the stuff that's coming dude, yeah, there's, there's been a lot more issues and a lot more questions and you just got to understand, you know, not all these kids come from the similar backgrounds. You know, there's a real um, hodgepodge of, of their backgrounds and the people that they have around them. And, um, and they are kids, you know, it's, it is, it is 17, 18 year old kids. And when we were 17, 18, uh, you know, we didn't have that outlet that, it didn't just go to our friends. It wasn't just said among a small group of people that had a, a complete understanding of context. It goes out to a bunch of strangers, you know, who are looking at it completely different. And there's a lot of people that see those type of comments these days. So you say something stupid and it's, it becomes something completely snowballs on you really quickly uh, as a youngster. And so, you know, that's why there's, there's a lot of rules with coaches these days. They just stay off social media. Don't, one of the rules is don't get on social media and talk about uh, the team matters. You know, the, everything stays inside the locker room. And, um, you know, you got to build a culture where people, where the kids trust in that, they understand why that's a, a, a rule. That's, that's, that's good coaching. That's where you've, if you've got culture and you've built it right, they don't just, you know, abide by the rules. They understand why those rules are there, right? This is why we do things this way, you know, protect your teammates. That's part of this. You you got to protect your teammates on the field and off the field all the time. You guys got to have each other's backs. That's the way this works. That was number one rule for Pete Carroll was always, and he used to talk about this even at camps, you know, during summer camps, he'd say, you know, we've got like, we've got a bunch of rules, but here are the three main rules. These are the top. This is why they're at the top, protect your teammates. And he would go into why that is important in football and this is one of the situations where, where, you know, obviously David Polypoly either didn't know that as a rule or think about that or it wasn't explained to him, you know, properly. And that's, again, one of those things where you transition to the next level. Uh, the good coaching staffs, they're going to de-recruit these players and get them in there and get them mentally prepared and understanding not just how they have to prepare for themselves, but understanding the bigger picture of the team. I feel like I also contributed to this because – Three days ago, Pale Pale posted on Twitter that he wanted more Instagram followers, and he told USC fans to follow him, and I retweeted him, Gerard. I retweeted him. I'm, I'm part of the problem. You so are exacerbating I, the issue of ego. Thank you very much, Chris Trino. Yeah, I'll take a timeout for that. Oh, oh. Uh oh, what are we? What are you saying there, Chris? What are that you saying there? That You're is trying to I, make a little something there, something going on. No, I on? just I just picked a random uh, audio oh, noise. See, I I okay. can I can do like uh... because only one thing counts in this life: get them to sign on the line which is dotted. Just get them to sign on the line that is dotted, Gerard. That that's all I got for you right now. Let's move on to our final topic, and it's a big one. Before we go into the break, and that is the USC versus Arizona recruiting angle. And this one's going to be a little bit different, kind of throwing it back, because this has been the first home game for USC in two weeks. So that means we have 
unofficial visitors on campus and well obviously one official visitor so visitors were on campus and Gerard this was the most stacked list USC has had to date maybe a little bit surprising as the most stacked list but they got to front hand uh seats to a 43-41 triple overtime victory I don't actually know how many of them stayed because it was quite late but lots lots of faces and recognizable faces in the stands. Gerard, how do you want to do this? Do you want to talk about the list first or do you want to actually talk about what you saw on the field first? I don't know. I think um, maybe let's just hit the list. Let's let's talk a little bit about... You know they want, they want to hear you say the name, Gerard. They want you to say the name. They want me to say that five-star Santa Ana modern day offensive tackle Brandon Baker actually was in the house and we saw him and we couldn't believe it was actually him. And we had to like confirm, reconfirm what we were actually seeing. Looked actually a little slim, looked a little yeah. slender. Um, didn't look too 90, uh, definitely a little more, um, you know, built, uh, in the legs than, than the upper body. But, uh, that was one of the players that showed up and, and obviously I wasn't crazy, Gerard. I wasn't crazy. You weren't crazy. Uh, cause I texted you. I was like, there's a guy who looks like Brandon Baker here, but I'm not crazy, the, Gerard. One of the other call, good calls was Justin Tananau, not to be confused with Jonah Tananau, who's again, went up to Oregon and medically retired and a past player that USC recruited. Um, but that was uh, obviously a, a big one as well. Um, you had uh, some of the commits that showed up. Uh, Sierra Canyon, uh, four-star safety, Marquise Gallegos, who uh, you know had uh, probably the most infamous, famous, well-remembered uh, commitment videos uh, over the summer for USC. Uh, USC had a, a good group of 2025 recruits and, and quite a few guys that have been there for all four games. It's the four-game home crew for USC. Which Hashtag is four game crew. Hashtag four yeah, game crew. Very important to see that consistency, getting good players on campus for games. Like that's a routine. That's something that we saw on the Pete Carroll era. And even really with the Lane Kiffin era, where you had those top local players that were coming in and they were getting them on campus regularly you know the it, one of these things that you know ha- started to happen really with with helton and even last year to some extent with with lincoln riley in the first year was just not getting some of the top players consistently on campus for visits and that tells you a lot you know that kind of tells you when guys don't show up for the for, for the games you know they're just not that engaged they're just not that interested in what's happening with the team and you want them to be around the team they want to be around the team they 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 want to be around the players that are on the team they want to be around the coaches so the 2025 class we've seen this more so than we've seen with past recent classes Dejan Lee the four star um Mission Viejo cornerback in the 2025 class his teammate Philip Bell four star wide receiver uh, at a Mission Viejo he's they've both been to every home game thus far um, you had Chuck McDonald there who has not been to any home games. I think this was the first home game that he made, but he is a good excuse. The modern day players, I mean, they've been playing uh, either out of state or they've had Saturday games the first like four or five games of the season. So they have not had an ability to get down to campus to actually see these USC games. So this being one of the first times where they're playing on a Friday night 
and they were able to get down to the Coliseum on Saturday. You saw a good contingent of those players there. Jordan Davidson, another guy, running back, four-star out of Modern Day High School. Uh, this was the first time he was able to make it to campus um, to see USC in person. Darius Dixon, another four-star cornerback out of Modern Day High School, was also there. One of the more intriguing out-of-state players that was able to make it back to Los Angeles. He did take an unofficial visit to Los Angeles June 16th when he was in town for the Elite 11, and that's Jonte Gilbert, uh, 6'1", 180-pound safety at Douglas High School in Atlanta, and someone that I talked to uh, a little bit about USC and about his unofficial visit. Uh, you also had in the 2026 class, Brandon Lockhart showed up for another official, uh, uh, unofficial Four-game crew, four-game crew. Another four-game crew guy. And so you had a good group of top-end players locally, um, kind of marqueed by Brandon Baker, which was unexpected. And, you know, we can get into talking a little bit about, you know, his recruitment and what have you. Um, but certainly it's one of those things where it's a double-edged sword, right? You get these good players on campus. Um, you get to showcase your football product on the field for them guess what? You got to play a good football game. <laughs> and that's always where the recruiting angle comes in. It's piecing together the product on the field with what these kids saw and, and trying to kind of see things through their perspective as well, which is always unique because it is much different than the fan base. The fans, right, you have to stress that. that yeah, you do this every time. See games much differently than recruits see games. And so, you know, that's why you kind of have to follow up with the recruits and kind of get their their impressions of the game, because it certainly doesn't play exactly the same. So I think that's when we get into the football game itself and what we saw on the field, Chris. Right. And again, I would imagine, you know, we're still tracking down some of these guys, but I'm imagining a lot of these guys are going to be talking about how this was a very thrilling, exciting game for them to take in. 43-41, triple overtime, Gerard. I was on the sidelines, but it did not start off as, obviously, as I mentioned, this is like the most stack list that you've had. Brandon Baker's in the house. You have an official visitor that you're trying to flip. And you have all these modern-day guys, four- or five-star guys in the 2025 class. You got off to the worst possible start you could have, down 17 nothing. Offense looks like shit. Defense looks like shit. And then it becomes a scratch claw bite, whatever you have to do to get back in this game. Caleb Williams doing it all himself to will this offense into the uh, end zone multiple times. A game where they flubbed it. They essentially flubbed the easy 25-yard game-winning kick with one of the worst special teams plays you'll you'll ever see. And we're going overtime. Felt like they weren't going to win this game. Somehow, somehow they made the plays. And again, in front of their most stacked visitor list with a five-star in the house whose Texas team just took an L in the Red River shootout, which we'll mention at the end of the show before we go into the list of questions. But yeah, Texas took a loss. Brandon Baker committed to Texas, decided to come hang out with his uh, some of his boys from modern day, taking this game. And it's very interesting to see how these, these kids interpret and process a thrilling, yes, thrilling game, but to a fan, sort of a an ugly, thrilling game. A frustrating game. Certainly yeah. on the bright side, it was an entertaining game. The crowd yes, was absolutely. pretty good. 
and it was a game where you did have a, a bit of drama there. You go down 17 nothing, and for most of the kids that I talked to, you, you really have two lines of thinking. You have, you know, it was great to see the defense step up, make an interception, and sort of turn the tide a bit on that lead. Uh, this was something that did not, I think, surprise you or me because we both thought that Arizona was going to absolutely cover. And yeah, you did, and me, baby, you and me, Slauncher boys, we knew. Did not feel at all like this was going to be a game where USC was. Uh, this was a wake up call. You know, so many Trojan fans were like, "Oh, you know that after that uh, that game against uh, Colorado." Um, you know, the defense is going to, you know, wake up and realize, hey, you know, they they, they got to step up and do their part. And the offense isn't going to have the off game that they did against Colorado. And I said, no, you, you don't understand. You should have figured out a week ago against Arizona State that this is kind of what USC is. They're, they're very much the same team that they were last year. And they struggled through this same sort of run of teams that are sort of mediocre teams that have some offensive talent and they have some offensive weapons that can score, they keep these teams in the game. Now, in this particular game, thank God USC wasn't playing in Tucson because this, they would have lost this game the, the, with the crowd and the momentum mm-hmm. and everything. It, it might have gotten away from them very early where they couldn't actually make the comeback. But they're playing at home. It's obviously everybody's kind of sitting on the edge of their seat like, oh, my gosh. I mean, are they just going to get blown out here? Like what, 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 you know, the offense is not playing well. I think from a recruiting standpoint, uh, there's a lot of the same that we've seen. Caleb Williams continues to be a selling point for the offense. You know, anytime you've got a generational talent like that, even outside of the quarterback position and the offensive side of the ball, you constantly hear about Caleb Williams and it's, you know, all these different players that I talk to, they always kind of go back in talking about Caleb Williams, whether it's Philip Bell, you know, talking to him about the wide receiver position and, you know, all these different players they had wide receiver and what's your impression of Zach branch or what's your impression of Dorian singer or what's your impression of, uh, you know, Brendan rice really stepping up this season. It's like, Oh yeah, you know, they, they, he's really playing well, but man, Caleb Williams is that we guy. We talk about Caleb Williams. Caleb Williams is him. I mean, they just want to talk about Caleb Williams. And that even was true talking to Jonte Gilbert, you know, a safety who, uh, of course, I want to talk to him a little bit about the defensive side of the ball, the secondary. What did you think? What did you see from them? With Gilbert specifically, he was able to come in Friday. And he actually went through walkthroughs and the team meetings with the team. So he sat down with Dante Williams. They're recruiting him more as a boundary corner. Now he plays cornerback and he plays safety at Douglas. He's rated as a safety. And I and I see why there are some little things I see with him that do remind me a bit of Jalen Ramsey, uh, who, you know, is that with the Miami Dolphins now, old pro cornerback a guy that was actually committed to USC once upon a time. That was during that 2012 year where USC had eight commitments, were number one in the nation. Um, They were handed down sanctions. Lane Kiffin says, hey, doesn't matter. We're still going to out-recruit everybody. And then they had a debacle of a season. And they ended up losing a bunch of those guys who were committed, including Jalen Ramsey. But the length and sort of how he moves – uh, he's got some explosiveness there. I mean, I really like what I see from Jonte Gilbert on film. And I think he can play safety, but I think he can also potentially play 
cornerback. It's really a matter of top end speed. And unfortunately, we don't get a lot of those times from kids anymore. They don't go to these camps to know exactly how fast they are. But, you know, on film, I see a lot of really good things from him. And he is uh, physical enough at the point of contact. But the length and the speed. He also plays receiver, and he, and he makes some plays on re- at receiver. So just in general, like a really good-looking talent. And so I'm like, okay, you're able to go through walkthroughs. You're seeing what they're doing in terms of um, coverages and, and, and what they're teaching. You know, what's what's not necessarily the game plan because, you know, we're not trying to give away anything here, but schematically, you know, how are you fitting in? What do you see from them? And he's talking, you know, a lot of man coverage. And he goes, you know, I, I like that. They trust in their their defensive backs. Uh, you know, we're, we're going through meetings. And they were very specific about me and, you know, breaking down sort of what they want to do and what they're looking at from Arizona. But then going back afterwards and Dante kind of sitting down with him and saying, OK, we're going to put your film in now. And we're going to connect what you saw from what we're doing with what you're doing on film. And it really was something that was very important for him. That was one of the highlights really of the visit for him is is being able to sit down with Dante and get into the details of him as a football player and developing as a football player. So, you know, you fast forward to the game on Saturday and, you know, he's like, yeah, they, they went down early, but you kind of knew the defense was going to step up and you you knew they could step up. Jacoby makes that great play. And and what we'd seen on film the day before it sort of played out exactly like that play did, you know, he, he was like in man coverage and he just kind of saw what his man off and he, he saw the route and he broke on it and, and, and was able to turn the tide on the game really with that play. You know, that, that was the first play, which gave the offense a chance to kind of get in to the red zone and boom, 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 you score. And all of a sudden now it's 17, seven, and it's a, it's a big change, you know, in, in feeling like you have a chance to get back in the game. And so, you know, we're, we're, I'm kind of, you know, trying to, to come back again to, you know, okay, defense and what you saw and, you know, they've given a point. Interestingly thing with him and is similar to what you heard from uh, Noah McHale, the four-star uh, linebacker out of Laverne, California, a 2025 uh, four-star linebacker at a Bonita High School, a lot of defense of USC's defense, which in my experience is a good thing when that's the initial sort of like there's a there's emotional investment in a team when a player um you know takes that angle takes that side of like oh i'm gonna defend you know what i saw whereas you know fans are like oh my gosh you know we're terrible and fire this coach and fire that coach you know with with jante he immediately said well you know they had injuries Damani Jackson wasn't playing in the game and he's, you know, like their top cornerback. Now, obviously there'd be some Trojan fans who would debate that. Um, and they had some injuries during the game, you know, uh, Covington got hurt during the game. And um, I think he said uh, somebody else went down, which I, I, Christian I, Roland I Wallace. yeah, Roland Wallace ended up going out. You're right. Correct. I, I, I was thinking of uh Sierra Wright, but yeah, Christian Roland Wallace, um, you know, wasn't, wasn't playing towards the end of the game as well. So on and so forth. And, and just really kind of summed it up to that. You know, this is still a rebuild. And, you know, I will say, and I know there's a lot of Trojan fans, you know, whether you're a dumper or a pumper, and there's a little bit of a civil war going on. And we feel like we're back into the Lane Kiffin years here a little bit 
with the defense and the offense and, you know, we're six and oh, and, you know, you got to be a Trojan fan and you should be supporting this team. And then there's the, but look at all the flaws sort of thing. It's like, yeah, supporting the team, but not being fooled by what is maybe about to happen. Because if you play like you played against Arizona, Colorado and Arizona state, you're going to get dismantled by some of these better teams that you're going to play. And there's, there's an argument to be made with both sides, but when you start to talk about the defense and you're looking at it through Dante Gilbert's eyes, this is still rebuild. It's still year two. And damn it, he's right. It is still year two. And that's, I mean, I know you, and, and, and it was to his own detriment. <laughs> Lincoln Riley comes in and he wins 11 games in the beginning of the season. And it is true also that we're not just looking at what's happened at USC. We are looking at the defenses that he had at Oklahoma as well. So there's, there's carry over there. But it is still year two at USC and there is still a bit of a rebuild going on. And so from Jonte Gilbert's perspective, you know, this is a team still on the rise. This is a team that is going to have its issues. There's still personnel issues, but this is a team that's getting better. And so, you know, that is interesting to kind of take a step back and say, okay, you know, if Lincoln Riley wins eight games last year, you know, are, are are the expectations as high that they should be blowing out, you know, Arizona State or or Arizona or what have you? Or is it more, you know, they've got this really good player in Caleb Williams, they've got a good offense, but there's still a lot of issues with the team because guess what? It's year two. Um, as I said before, this is the real meat of the schedule we're going to get in. We're kind of see what the team is capable of. I mean, again, I think we're kind of looking back to last year and that that might be what we get, you know, it's going to be a lot of maybe the same as last year, which is, which is just to say they're going to win, still win a bunch of these games, you know, games that people right now are saying, no way, you know, they can't beat Washington, can't beat Oregon, can't beat Notre Dame. And they'll end up winning a bunch of those games because that's really what they did last year as well. Uh, they won teams clearly that nobody thought they were going to win. I mean, we didn't think that they were going to go and win more than eight, maybe nine games. That was like, Hey, that's, that's pretty good. First year, after winning four games. And so, you know, you're kind of still like right now after those sloppy games and the offense plays bad, listen, the offense isn't going to play as bad as it did against Arizona. I I don't Mm -hmm. think that's something that you can expect at the same time. I wouldn't expect this defense to turn a new leaf. I think it kind of is what it is. We talked about it after the Arizona state game. And this is why, you know, I I don't want to be a Ted Horth, talking about the issues because they're the same issues that come up. It's it's the big plays, particularly in the second half, you know, it's, it's in the secondary. It's a really some sketchy second level defense play, missed tackles, et cetera. And it's the same kind of stuff we saw last year. They've got more talent up front, but schematically what they do and how they do it, there's lots of issues there. And it's just sort of, you know, kind of a a, a retread of, of a lot of the things that we saw Uh, last season and so you know we'll see what happens I think at the end of the season when it comes to personnel and and whether schematically this is you know the 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 avenue Lincoln Riley wants to take Um, I've mentioned you know with with Chip Kelly you know with a offensive minded head coach that feels very confident in his scheme he feels confident that he can outscore people he just needs to win the possession game um, sometimes the defense is, is a certain way and the philosophy on defense is not what you would traditionally think would be what you would want to win games. You know, it's not to stop 
the opposing offense. It's basically just to win possessions. So there's going to be big plays given up because you're trying to make big plays. You're trying to get turnovers is really what it's all about. And so it's a completely different mindset. And Chip Kelly had Nick Aliotti in terrible, awful defenses for the longest time up at Oregon. Longest time. The only time they had competent defenses, which is when they actually got to the national championship game, is when you had a bunch of uh, NFL guys up in that front line. You had Eric Armstead, you had DeForest Buckner, etc. And you need those type of elite players to be able to kind of compensate for the fact that you're just not going to stop teams defensively. You know, you're going to depend on your offense to be kind of your best defense by putting pressure on the opposing offense because you're you're scoring. You're going up and down the field, and it's like holy crap. You know, we're going to be out of the we're like we're first couple of possessions and we're already down, you know, 21 seven here. And then you start to panic a little bit. Um, so I think, you know, again, more of the same from that standpoint. But the recruits that we talk to, it's it's just there's not frustration there. You know, and I think that's also like the difference between talking to fans about college football and they're they're in the weeds about the details of what's happening week to week, day to day, you know, how this player played every snap and and looking at things in, in, in a, under a microscope where as a kid's just coming in, he's like, yeah, you know, I saw some big plays and it was cool. And they're also talking directly to the coaches and the coaches are professional salesmen. So they're, you know, they're hearing a whole totally different kind of uh, speak on, you know, what's going on and if there's any questions there. Um, and if, you know, Lincoln Riley got on the phone and talked to you know, every single Trojan fan that's listening to the podcast right now and after the week said, hey, listen, this is what's going on. This is what we want to do. And, and got that personal sort of, um, you know, reassurances. They might feel a little differently, you know, as to, to what's going on with the team. And, and, and obviously they're not 17 year old kids, so they may fire back and there might be a little more resistance to, oh, oh coach. OK, oh, all right. I see that now, coach. Um, it it still would probably go a long ways as opposed to just seeing these media scrums and, you know, the, the, the the journalists are asking their questions and the coaches are just like, yeah, you know, well, I think I, I see improvement from the defense and, you know, uh, the untrained eye comment that is everybody in a tizzy on the peristyle these days. Um, you know, those things, they, they tend to sort of patronize a little bit. And I think it just adds fuel to the frustration of, you know, what are you doing to fix this issue? I was I was thinking back to your earlier point, which was like uh, 30 minutes ago, about how the success of the 2022 season has greatly influenced the how people feel about 2023. Because you're right, if Lincoln Riley had come out and they had won, you know, eight games, won eight and four, solid year, everyone would have been like, yeah, that's great. You know, they only won four games, one of the worst USC teams in school history in 2021 my god could not stop anyone and could not score on anyone and yeah people will be like yeah but because you had a Heisman winner and because you literally came one win away from making the college football playoff everybody all the fans everyone put all their hopes into this year because you only have Caleb Williams for one more year you have this generational talent and we've been calling him a generational talent on this podcast because he is and you're gonna waste it because your defense can't improve by allowing 10 less points got better talent but you're still missing close to 20 tackles per game you're still giving up big chunk plays again if they had won eight games last year 
the outrage would not even be close to what it is this year. It would have been like, okay, maybe we can make a run. Maybe we can make a run for that Pac-12 title game, and then we'll see what happens with the college football playoff. No, it's national championship game or bust. That was the expectations because of all the talent you brought in. People were still wary about bringing Alex Grinch back after the way the defense collapsed at the end of the year, especially in the Tulane game. Lincoln Riley was never going to make that change because he wanted the uh, continuity. He had you know, seen turnaround under an Alex Grinch defense. So that was never going to happen. But again, the success of last season has sort of, I don't want to say tainted, but it's altered what is a successful season in 2023. And a successful season in 2023 is make the college football playoff. And as of right now, I mean, they can still do it. Look, they absolutely can still do it, but it's going to take much better defense. And will that happen? I mean, I'm leaning towards no, Gerard, but like, again, they still have to play the game. You know, I actually feel good about their chances going into Notre Dame this weekend for whatever reason, because I don't think they're going to play that bad to start a game uh, again this year. Offensively, three punts and a fumble. I don't think they're going to start have a start like that uh, again in 2023. But but still, I I've been thinking about this the last couple of weeks because, yeah, it's it's just been I can see why fans are frustrated. But also, Jonte makes a good point. They are still rebuilding. It is still year two. You still don't have a complete overhauled roster in the sense that you have guys deep two to three positions where you can just kind of have that depth and have that. I mean, it's much better than it was a year ago, but last year it wasn't it. And this year it is certainly better, but it's still still an issue, obviously, on the field. But again, I don't know what's going to happen for this defense. Lincoln Riley says it's going to has the chance. It has the ability to improve rapidly and reach a high ceiling rapidly in the back half of the season. I mean, I don't know. If you're going to figure out against Washington, sure. You're going to figure out against in in Otson in November, sure. You're going to figure out against Utah. I don't know. So, yeah, I think I think he does make a good point, Jonte, about it is still a rebuild, but also fans don't want to hear that, Gerard, after coming one win short of a college football playoff. The rebuild happened in six months, Gerard. That's all it took. So, having said all that, when are you putting your crystal ball in for? Brandon Baker to USC. Can I have a night to think about it? Can I have a <laughs> night to think about it? No, no crystal balls coming right now. Uh, nope. That is going to be an NIL situation. He does have professional representation, and we've talked about that quite a bit uh, over the years. So I don't want to get in and rehash uh, same old, same old. Haven't heard too much about that. I think he was just down there hanging out, uh, had some uh, teammates at the game. And, um, you know, he had not been to USC for I don't know how long. I mean, he has not been on campus for USC, I think, since probably January. So it is good, though. I mean, you got to get kids on campus and you got the ball rolling. Yeah, you, you got to start do, somewhere. You got to start somewhere. Um, but I think, you know, to the point of the expectations of the fan base and, and the expectations of recruits and how they're not the same. I mean, you can look at USC last year and last season and see games where they could have lost. Those games have been an 18 win. I mean, very mm-hmm. easily could have been an eight win team. Um, you know, I think the, the I mean, the game at uh, Col- uh, Corvallis, Oregon, Oregon, Oregon yeah. State, you know, that could have definitely been a, a loss. 
Uh, last year's game against uh, Arizona could have been a loss. I mean, Arizona played them tough last season. Uh, Cal played them tough last season. UCLA game could have very easily been a loss. I mean, it takes uh, a Corey Minor, a Corey uh, Foreman, Corey Minor. That's going Corey Minor, the, the Bishop of Mont days. Then <laughs> um, it's a Notre Dame, uh, former Notre Dame outside linebacker, but Corey Foreman uh, making that interception, you know, to kind of seal that victory. And so, you know, the, there was some definitely some close games last season where you saw the defense was not playing at a particularly high level. Yes, they made some big plays, but it's like you shouldn't have been in the position where you had to make that big play at the end of the game in order to win the game. And so that's one of those things in, in the fan base, you know, to to their defense. They want to see progression, and the thing is you just haven't seen a ton of progression. The 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 issues that sort of prevented Lincoln Riley from actually winning playoff games at Oklahoma are kind of the same issues you're seeing creep up with USC now. So, again, it's that longer view of what's happening. It's that sort of getting this data – from going back into Oklahoma to what you're seeing now, which of course is not what a recruit in the 2025 class is getting or seeing or, or, or trying to calculate to make these decisions and to make these opinions. So again, perspective, completely different. I think it was mostly positive for USC, uh, certainly not in the way where, however, um, it's this buildup where you know the, the the Coliseum is rocking and the team is playing really well and there's this feeling like oh man you know USC is is on on the rise right now USC is sort of kind of flatlined to some extent maybe that's that's the wrong word to use because that would just say that they're dead it's yeah it's, it's are, not they dead, dead, Gerard? are you calling them dead the dead program what I mean is is it's it's plateaued it's it's sort of you know, we're we're not seeing this like the, the the trajectory going upward, upward, upward here. We're we're kind of seeing like, okay, we're back to that stretch last season where you played Cal and you played Arizona and you played Arizona State and you played Colorado. They blew out Colorado last year, but you know, for obvious reasons. But you're playing these teams that you should be dominating and you're having these games where you're barely winning by a touchdown. And in this one, triple overtime. So that's where you know the, the, the fan base is there's frustration there. And listen. That does reverberate on the recruiting trail to some extent. You know, these are these are coaches, these are trainers, these are parents, these are people in the stands that some of them have opinions in the inner circles of these recruits. And so when you have that sort of feel for where the program is going or what is happening, yeah, there's conversations that happen behind the scenes uh, that are not going to be beneficial for you when it comes to, okay, where are you going to develop? as a player to get drafted? Where are you going to win national championships? Um, all of these things, they're, they're, they all sort of line up and they can become issues on the back end for you. But at face value with this group of recruits, like I said, 2025, and I, and I hate to be that guy, I, I, you know, oh, next year, next year, it's going to happen next year. You know, when it seemingly was going to happen this year where you thought, okay, the product on the field, they're going to win. And, and again, this is the meat of the schedule now. You go to Notre Dame, you win a game. And listen, Notre Dame is a traditional power. And while they haven't had the best season, they've got two losses in a row. They could have beat Ohio State. Mm-hmm. Um, the loss of Louisville wasn't, wasn't a bad loss. It was a loss. It was a top That's 25 a, team. That is a win 
no matter what. The, now we're getting into the part of the schedule uh, that a win is a win. Okay, so you know we were in the part of the schedule where a win wasn't just a win. Why? Because you should have dominated those teams statistically in just about every category. But now you're actually into the meat of the schedule where it's just like playing Utah on the road. It's just doesn't matter. Like you just beat these teams no matter how. Get the win, get out of there, and come home. This is where you can be Graham Harrell and you can say, "What do winners do?" Winners win, and you can and you can ride that sort of uh, that sort of um, mantra. Uh, but you know there are games that you know how you win and how you lose. It, it does sort of matter. I think here you're just looking for dubs. If you can just get W's and you can you can get out of Notre Dame with a win, you can beat Utah at home, and you can get up there. and And even if you split with Oregon and Washington, I think you're still seeing uh, a good you know, upward trajectory and, and the feeling kind of changes and maybe there is a little more momentum there as you get into November and flip season. And again, you know, with a majority of these positions that USC is recruiting in this cycle, they're doubling down on their board. You know, we have not seen a bunch of new scholarship offers go out. It's like, you know, one particular position that we can see is wide receiver. And we'll, you know, kind of talk about this a little more um, as we get into uh, the 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 show um, that's a position where you could definitely add another high end quality player and and the way that you're playing would suggest that you should be able to persuade such a player at the high school level to be able to come in and play for you and so you know there's some positions where you're gonna argue you're gonna go how how are you going to convince you know, such and such to to decommit from this school and commit to you when maybe on the defensive side of the ball, you haven't necessarily shown a whole lot, regardless of wins or losses. You know, it's like you're still winning, but you're winning with the offensive side of the ball. Well, wide receiver, uh, running back. I mean, these are positions that we've not seen additional scholarship offers go out. And so that tells me that USC is feeling like that the first thing they want to exhaust are the options that they already had on the board. Um, guys that have already gone somewhere else. So we'll see, you know, what happens there uh, as uh, we, like I said, get past the meat of the schedule and you see, you know, how these wins and losses line up and whether you can, you know, get out of, um, you know, Autzen Stadium at the back end of it. Um, and, and, you know, whether you're you're lined up going on the college football playoff or you've lost a couple games and you've got blown out, at, you know, some of them and it's like, okay, time to take restock. You know, this this recruiting class has come and gone. You know, 2024 is done at that point. You're not gaining a bunch of momentum on the field. You're not going to get a bunch of flips. So now you're starting to look at the portal and trying to address the needs that you have. And then obviously you're at the end of the season and you start talking about any type of coaching changes you're going to have. Gerard, is there anything else you want to add in this recruiting angle or, or can we move into a break and further on into the show? Um. I mean, we could definitely go on, but I don't think there's a lot. I mean, Isaiah Rubin was at the game. You know, there there's a few other good-looking players um, that were at the game. Like I said, you know, it was one of those things where you would love to see USC dominate as a Trojan fan and really reiterate certain aspects of the program. Certainly, the the aspects of the program which have been maybe lacking. You know, your 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 play in the front seven. You know, to to try to showcase that for some of those players. Particularly the run game came up short, you know, and you have J- Jordan Davis in there who's leaning away from USC at this point. Um, it would have been 
good to be able to kind of showcase, hey, look at, you know, our run game is is healthy. We're a balanced offense. And that wasn't the case. I mean, they they've gotten increasingly away from the run game. And the run game is 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 not looking as good as it has either. Even in the limited uh carries that some of the running backs have had, we've noted that the yards per carry has been very good. And it's been a note for, you know, additional runs and, and trying to commit more to the run game. USC still not committed to the run, but there's more argument against Colorado and certainly against Arizona that the run wasn't really there, that they had some runs that were stopped. And that's why you want to go to the pass. Um, I do wonder a bit. And again, now we're getting into the part of the schedule where we're really going to see the rubber meet the road. These defenses have had a year to sit back and look at Caleb Williams. They've had a year to sit back and see Lincoln Riley at USC, how he uses his personnel, any tendencies that are coming up. And I do wonder if this is where you're not going to see teams stop USC. Um, I think USC stopped itself more than anything against Arizona, but can frustrate them a little more than they have in the past. And this is not going to be an offense that's just going to go up and down the field and score 50 points every game. This is going to be one of those situations where they're going to be a very good offense. They're going to score points, but it's not going to come as easy as it did last season. And that's going to put even more onus on special teams and more onus on the defense. And if you're not more balanced and you're not able to just outscore everybody, you're going to lose more games because of it. So that's something that, you know, more with the Arizona coaching staff because they did get to see USC last year. And obviously they played USC pretty tough last year. Colorado defensive staff did not, you know, so that's completely new. You know, USC was seeing that staff and their scheme for the first time and vice versa. But now we get into where, you know, USC has played some of these teams twice. You know, with Utah, it'll be the third time that they play. Familiarity tends to uh, play towards the strength of defense more than does offense. One name I did want to mention is Cameron Brickle, the unranked 2026 defensive lineman out of uh, Pennsylvania. Well, he's not out of Pennsylvania anymore. He actually transferred to Santa Margarita. and I couldn't actually figure out why he was going to so many USC games all the way out from Pennsylvania. Well, the answer is he has a transfer to the Trinity League and he's six foot two, 290 pounds. So there's a big East Coast defensive lineman who is now on the West Coast, and he had some pretty impressive offers to start Maryland, Penn State, Pittsburgh, Tennessee, Texas A&M, um, I think uh, Wisconsin, West Virginia. So he's got some offers. Georgia offered him. So Cameron Brickle, just keep that, that name in the back of your head of 2026, now on the West Coast. So I would expect for him to be at USC a lot more in the future. And Gerard, with that, let's go into our break so we can get into the second half of this show. We'll be right back after this little mariachi song.
Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24/7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road with available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Gerard, how, how are you feeling one half in the new environment? Feeling good, you know, just taking mm. some stock of the calamine lotion that I had in the... Uh, calamine the- that was yeah yeah i i uh i was thinking about it thinking about it you you i I said i think i said can't can't figure out and then you know you went into cancel you went in on every canna everything cantaloupe everything you could possibly flood my tiny little brain with and uh yeah Yeah. the the calamine lotion completely uh, escaped me but anyways yeah thankfully um you know like i said i was i was icing those bad boys on the second half of the show yeah, last week. And so I was pretty good. I didn't have any like really bad itchy ones and uh, didn't really actually need a lot of calamine lotion, but we're good to go. No mosquitoes. And, um, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're buzzing along here uh, in this, uh, this, uh, this show, I, I think would be probably one of the shorter shows because 
we have specific things to talk about. I don't know. We're going to see, I guess, at the end of the night whether it's a short show or not. Are we going to be like USC and totally collapse in the second half of this show? I don't no, know. The longer like you... we go, the better it gets, Chris. The longer we go, the better it gets. Yeah, that feels like a phrase or a phrase that should be for this podcast, not for USC. That feels like that is our phrase. Those mantras, they just don't tend to work, you know? They always become a meme. It seems like we are a meme. Take back the West, you know, strain. It, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's it's sort of like uh, you know, win forever. You know, was something did, that Pete did Carroll Pete have any? Say. Is that did, I was going to say to Pete, win forever, win forever. That was, was that the that that was the co-authored book I think he wrote with Yogi Roth, and win forever was I don't know. It was some kind of weird. <laughs> I, I didn't read the book. I I'm sorry. I just you know I think Ryan did or what have you. It, it was some kind of. It's new probably game. it's. I'm going to be honest. It's probably here in this office right now somewhere. I'm going to look for it. Um, yeah, I bet, I bet win forever. There's a copy of it somewhere around here. Uh, probably a signed copy of it. Somewhere. Yeah. I was going to say probably a signed copy, but yeah, I'll I'm a little more into the like older philosophical views of actual philosophers than football coaches that, you know, want to talk philosophy, not to say that, you know, there's, it's not interesting and Nick Saban doesn't have interesting philosophies or Bill Pelichick or what have you, but when it becomes a mantra and it becomes a sort of saying, win the day that's Chip Kelly's. Eh, usually it's a little more cringy and it sort of seems to backfire on you more than it does actually, uh, you know, make sense. Motivate. <laughs> yeah, motivate. I don't know. All right, Gerard. Well, let's try to win forever in the second half of this episode. We're going from Calamine Lotion to College of San Mateo, and that's College of San Mateo cornerback Sione Laule. Is that is that? <laughs> You can tell you studied that name real hard. Yeah, I, I did my best. I, I Give me a C plus on it. Committed to Oregon, Chris. What do we do? He committed to Oregon. Why are we talking about this? I don't know. You put it on the sheet. So uh, <laughs> it's I news, will man. say USC it's was news. one of his finalists. So technically, uh, that is why it's on here. But again, USC wasn't the projected favorite. Seems like the communication had fallen off. Oregon had been trending as the number one school for him. And lo and behold, he becomes a duck. Also, I have to say shout out to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel because that's where he committed with Brandon Huffman. But uh, Sione, not going to be a Trojan, Gerard. Yeah, kind of interesting because, you know, our national recruiting director, Steve Wolfon, kind of put it out there like, I don't know if it's going to be Oregon right now. Which kind of threw me off because I was here in old Oregon. And Miami at one point, I think, was his leader maybe during the summer at some point. But I'd been here in Oregon, Oregon, Oregon up until the season. And really, I hadn't heard his name talked about much in USC circles for probably the past two months. Even after his official visit, we talked about this last week. Wasn't a lot of buzz around him. So this is not. A surprise and you know people were talking about emojis and what emojis tied to what recruitment i've already kind of made my stance, stance on that yeah yeah uh los alaminos cornerback isaiah rubin i think is you know kind of the 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 option there for usc i think that's where they are with that cornerback position and uh sione leo lao leo leo lao is uh not uh going <laughs> that again to, <laughs> la, la, la. Uh, he's not going to be a Trojan. And I think that's not, that's not unexpected. I think the coaching staff kind of knew they were on the outside looking in for him for a while. Let's keep it pushing Gerard. And this is, I feel like every 
uh, topic we've talked about has just played into the other quite nicely because we're talking about well, cornerbacks. You. Talking about talking, yeah, you you I, built I this thing very well. We built this city. We built this city on segways. I don't know. I mean, it's just transitions, man. When you're a writer and you're you, uh, particularly a broadcast journalism writer, you got to write for TV. You got to have good segues. You got to have good segues, good transitions, or people just fall asleep on you. Well, I apologize because I did move some stuff around. Because I actually moved Sione to the second half of the break, but it, it seems like it's worked out okay for us so the next there's topic, Chris trying to take some credit there's Chris going, I, I, I'm, I'm not ever moving some things around and made it better but I'm just talking things uh one our next topic talking about a cornerback that's not going to be a Trojan we're going to talk about a player that is maybe going <laughs> is a Trojan is a Trojan that might be a cornerback that's Makai Lemon and this week he's been working as a defensive back working with the cornerbacks and Again, a little backstory on Makai Lemon was rated as an athlete prospect early in his uh, high school career that got changed to wide receiver. You know, a borderline five-star prospect was the number one athlete at one point. And some people thought maybe, you know, defensive back was actually his best position. I don't know if this is going to be sort of a thing that's a permanent thing where he moves definitely to defensive back side. But... USC is a little bit thin at the cornerback spot. Obviously, Damani Jackson was hurt last week. Seems like he's coming back for this big Notre Dame game. But Christian Roland Wallace, Jacoby Covington both got banged up. Their status is a little bit up in the air. They do have Sierra Wright. Prophet Brown stepped in uh, on Saturday against Arizona. But looks like they're just getting a little bit more depth there in, in, in case you know they're down multiple guys once again going into Notre Dame. So Makai Lemon, really talented athlete, really talented wide receiver. Saw him play a lot of cornerback at Los Alamitos. Could he be a guy we see there for the rest of the season? I'm not sure, but it looks like he's taking the steps to at least be a guy that can help contribute if they need him to be. I feel like you don't make this move unless you're pretty confident that he can play cornerback and this might be his best position. I don't know if this is a move that, well, just temporarily we're going to do this. I feel like it's a Joshua Jackson type of situation where it's like, yeah, you know, we don't have the depth. And then he just never plays offense again. I was told coming out of the high school ranks, shout out to Armand Hawkins, uh, father of Chris Hawkins, uh, CEO of Ground Zero. He was Who, adamant. He was actually in the Coliseum. The whole oh, Hawkins he? family, the entire Hawkins family, the entire Hawkins clan, Armando, Chris, Christian Dunbar. Armand, they were all there. The entire, they were all on the sidelines. Interesting. Well, Mondo Jr. is uh, in the uh, staff for the Arizona Wildcats. So he went from being at Colorado and wanted to be more on the field. He wants to be a coach. He, you know, wants to be on the field as a position coach. And so Arizona was going to give him that opportunity. So he's working there. Uh, for the Arizona car or Arizona cars, the Arizona Wildcats, <laughs> and so that was that was probably part of the reason um, the whole fam was there uh, because uh, you know since uh, Chris Hawkins was on the USC staff and um, you know is, is is moving on at that point and now you know Mondo was on the USC staff as well as a recruiting analyst and was let go. Uh, a lot of uh, you know Trojan feelings there for 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 the fam uh, these days. But um, nevertheless, you know, Mondo Sr. had said and was kind of adamantly like, you know, his best position is, is going to be defensive back. I think he actually was quoted saying so 
in our future impact piece when uh, Makai Lundman had committed to USC from Oklahoma. And, you know, and I've heard this from several other people, you know, the, the thing that always comes across the, the, the one thing that's said by everybody is he's a dog. He's a dog. Like he's aggressive. He's physical. He's got, he's sometimes too aggressive. You know, he's been kicked out of some seven on seven games playing defensive back because he's gotten a little too physical. He is Definitely not like a wide receiver that you fear won't come up and make a tackle, won't make a hit, won't get in somebody's face. And so we've seen in the past couple of weeks actually on kickoff return, um, taking the place of Zach Branch. And I think the coaching staff is just kind of watching that and saying, you know what? We think that he's going to be better athletically as a defensive back. So I, I do think this is probably going to be permanent. At least that's, you know, they're thinking right now. And what it does is it, it's interesting because it does open up the wide receiver room a little more um, to some extent because you have uh, the, the the freshmen that are coming in. And we've already seen Zachariah Branch. We've already seen his exploits and what he can do. Uh, we've seen a little bit of Jacoby Lane, um, but, you know, a lot of very positive reviews of him and, and the impact he's going to make at USC. And we've seen Deuce Robinson play predominantly as receiver, lost a bunch of weight. And, you know, the tight end position is still pretty much not utilized by USC. We've seen a little bit of Lake McCree and a little bit, a little bit of Jude Wolf here and there. But in terms of utilizing the tight end in the past game, it really wasn't, hasn't happened a whole lot. So Deuce has actually been more of a wide receiver than he has been a, you know, tight end or, or been in line. And in the future, who knows, you know, maybe he puts on some of that weight again and he, he becomes a bit, maybe more of a mismatch as a tight end. Um, I think that's his best position. I mean, I think ceiling wise playing tight end um, is, is where it's at for him. Uh, but nevertheless, they, they have those players. And then, you know, you look at the sophomore. So just the underclassmen, because you're always looking kind of at your underclassmen to, to that's going to impact how you recruit. In terms of cycle, it's usually the two-year cycle is, you know, what you're looking at when you're trying to replace players. You've only got uh, Hudson, uh, you've only got Kyron Hudson, and you've got Relique Brown there, who is still kind of up in the Might air. Might be on his way out. Yeah, stay at USC. Um, they could definitely use him, you know, right now. This is this is the thing which, you know, you kind of feel like he's probably gone because he's been adamant taking that red shirt, and right now they could use him um, instead of uh, not having Zach Branch there. Um, in the slot and having a dynamic sort of player uh, with the ball in his hands in space, um, he's, you know, taking a red shirt and doing some scout team stuff. So you you definitely feel like he's on his way out. So now it's like, okay, so who do you have to replace him? Um, now you've got Makai Lemon, who's, you know, playing defensive back. You've got Raleigh Brown, who, you know, really more of a running back, but you could, you know, play some in the slot. He might be on his way out. Um, and, you know, you do have uh, – Deuce Robinson is playing more receiver, but could still potentially end up a guy that you want to use more as a tight end um, in the offense. So the receiver board, and we talked about this earlier, has not expanded very much. You know, mm -hmm. we have not seen additional scholarship offers. There's you know, nobody out there locally that they've seen recently. It's had a good season. It's like, okay, we're going to start recruiting this guy. We're going to offer this kid. Um, it's still kind of, if you look, at the top of the board, which is where you'd want to be, you would think, you know, if you're USC and you're playing this well offensively, you've produced receivers, um, you you have a pretty high bar recruiting that position. You don't just want to get bodies at the wide receiver position. You know, who, who's on the board still? 
the guys that they've already recruited that have gone elsewhere, Bryant Wesco, Draylon Miller, and Mike Matthews. Those are the three guys that officially visited USC. You know, USC was very focused on. And of that group, Clemson hasn't had a great year. I didn't get the sense that Brian Wesco was, you know, really serious about USC, though, coming away from that May official visit. It was a real kind of quick turnaround where USC offered him a scholarship, and it was like two weeks later, schedules an official visit, and boom, he's on campus, and he's taking that official visit. Coming away from that, you didn't get the sense like USC was – they made this huge move for him. And a lot of people were talking about, oh, you know, maybe he ends up back at Oklahoma. Maybe he ends up at Clemson. I don't think USC is really in that conversation right now, but you never know. Um, Traylon Miller, I think, is still going to be the biggest question mark. This is a player that, A, really liked USC, was serious about USC, uh, visited US, USC multiple times. Uh, is committed to a school where uh, they're 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 not having a bad year, uh, but they're not having a great year either. And offensively, they have not been very good for a second straight year. So there's questions there. Um, does the bottom fall out for for Texas A&M? You know, do they have additional losses uh, coming up during the season? You know, the kind of stands um, that we're we're thinking it's a kind of another mediocre year. And that will play well if USC can continue to play well, win games, and be such a juggernaut offensively. So he's the one that you kind of look at and go, okay, uh, Tennessee hasn't been great this year either. You know, offensively, there's some uh, some questions there at quarterback and what have you. But I don't think – I haven't heard anything with Mike Matthews' recruitment to, to say that, you know, there's, there's, there's been any kind of needle move there. Um, You've got to get one of these guys back on campus. That's going to be the ultimate tell. If you're able to flip, it's getting one of these guys back on campus. And at this point, you would think Draylon Miller is the guy that they would have the best shot of doing that. The biggest underlying question mark is NIL because there were two guys. Well, there's a few guys. I mean, if you include Brandon Baker, but really, even before. You know, we started hearing about Brandon Baker and, and, and having an agent and, and all this stuff going on with NIL. Uh, you heard with uh, Manasseh Adite and Draylon Miller that NIL was going to be a big factor in their recruitment. So this is one where, you know, it's it's uh, does it change because maybe, you know, the decommitment could happen closer to, to December and it doesn't really matter. And once a kid is enrolled, it's like, hey, listen, you know, USC has been good at two things when it comes to NIL, uh, having NIL deals for transfers, guys like Bear Alexander, guys like Caleb Williams, et cetera, um, and having good NIL deals and a good system in place for the guys that are currently on the team, you know, House of uh, Victory and 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 those, those outfits, really there's three of them at, at this point, but House of Victory is kind of like the the one that's, that's certainly the biggest um, and been the most successful that has a lot of representation within the football team. Some of the top players in the football team, you know, those guys have, have taken care of uh, the current football team. Um, it's really that sort of, you know, with the recruits and taking that chance and gambling on certain recruits. And certainly it's something that, you know, we get into the whole, you know, legalities of it and inducement, et cetera. The closer you get to signing day, the less that becomes an issue. You know, it's like, listen, you're going to sign next week. Okay. So once you're signed and you're part of the program and go through admissions and everything's, you know, good, there, there's no more waiting. 
from that standpoint. And then, you know, maybe USC is, is able to compete from that standpoint. But as we saw last year with Francis Maragoa and several other players, um, it didn't matter. You know, once they made those deals with NIL and NIL was a big thing uh, for them and their recruitment, it was over. Their recruitments were over. They didn't waver. And so we're still at that point trying to get enough data and enough instances where we have empirical evidence as to like how recruitments go post NIL, post commitment in this era, because we just don't have enough to go by to really know if you can flip a kid that, you know, it's like, listen, NIL is going to be the, the, the talking point. And can you get to a point where it's like, OK, the school he's going to. I mean, because we did see with uh, Jaden Rashada's recruitment how that went. And that was a bit all over the place, you know, where NIL was a big factor, commits to Miami. Miami's one of the five families. And then, boom, he commits and he goes into Florida. And everybody's like, oh, wow. And it, I mean, that, you know, we're not going to rehash that whole thing. But it was very comical from the standpoint of how things were, were were said publicly about NIL at Florida particularly. And then they end up getting committed. And then, you know, a matter of months later, boom. You know, the, the rug is pulled out and now he's at Arizona State. So, I mean, it's 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 wild. It's wild. And we just kind of have to wait and see how this all shakes out. And again, USC has the meat of going out there and playing football and winning football games against good teams. And like I said, the the how you win is not going to matter quite as much. You know, you go up and you win uh, by one point announcing if you win trip overtime in South Bend. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. I mean, listen, there always will be a segment of fans that are like, well, you know, I mean, we really, you know, our offense is so much better than blah, blah, blah. And Ohio State did this. And and there there will always be those comparisons when you get into the minutia of a football game and and the fans, again, are are looking at it under a microscope. But I think the majority feeling is like, you know what, that's a rival. We played on the road. And they're they're not a bad football team. They're they're still a decent football team. Yeah, they have their flaws, but we just went out there and we beat them by. We haven't know. beat them since 2011 on the road. So, yeah, that and I'm again, saying me, we as US, I'm saying we as USC fans. Sorry, yeah, just want to clarify that. You know, and and playing up there and outs in and you know even you know with Utah at home. I mean Utah is a good team. They lack quarterback. They lack weapons. But they're not a team that you're going to beat. Easily. They don't allow it. They just their style of football. You know, it's hard to blow out a, a team like that. So, yeah, this, we're in that meat of the schedule where it's like just win, baby. Like now we can say that now we can say, you know, a win is a win. What are winners? Whatever kind of memeish, you know, whatever. Win forever, is. baby. Yeah. Win forever. Now, when you get, you know, now when you play Kyle, maybe some of those other teams in the back end, <laughs> there might be a little more of like you need to, you know, start dominating at this point. But yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, you're you're kind of past the point where it's like the expectation is to dominate. Now it's just like. You know, the, the expectations have quite frankly been lowered, in, in my opinion. I mean, I, I think after the Arizona State game, I wrote lower expectations because we're kind of looking at the same team as last year, which is good and bad. Last year, you won 11 games. So that's a good thing. But the bad thing is college football playoff, national championship, you know, they don't have the completeness. They don't have the balance on offense and defense to maybe do that. They may be still going to lose a couple of close games. And again, that the frustration will be there with the fan base because, you know, you won 11 games last year. You're supposed to win 12 games this year. You know, and that's, again, a monster that Lincoln Riley created himself by winning 11 games last year. 
I, I, I forgot, honestly, what point we were on. I, for, I realized this started with Mikhail Lemon to defensive back. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. I think we're talking about flip season, how USC right. plays on the field, right. and trying to replace a receiver. That's how we got there. That's how we got there. That's exactly how we got there. And we'll see if USC can get there in terms of pulling off some big flips. But again, it's going to start. They want to have a good flip season. It's going to start in South Bend. Get down there to South Bend. Get your first win there since uh, 2011. USC is going to be on the path to catch a lot more attention from, you know, a guy like Draylon Miller, a guy who are committed. You're going to be able to text kids and be like, hey, did you catch our big win? Over the and weekend, again, you see what we did? And the difference between last year at this time and this year is that, you know, recruits are on notice. You know, they're, they're a little more looking forward to seeing how USC plays, you know, and there's less like, oh, it's a rebuild year. So don't worry about what's going on at USC. Um, you know, the better you are for the longer you are, the more eyes that are going to be on you. And so you do have an opportunity uh, over the next you know few weeks here to really showcase um, regardless of whether, you know, you're playing at home or not. Uh, you do have that opportunity to kind of showcase, you know, we are a program back on the rise. We are a championship contending program. You come here, you're going to have the ability to develop. And so, you know, the box score sort of readings that come off with recruits, and we already talked a little bit about this from the game, um, you know, last Saturday night. It certainly, I mean, I mean, you would have, I think, a majority of Trojan fans, uh, they were not happy with the way USC played. And you do have the people that are like, hey, we're 6-0. And again, they're always going to be, you know, there's extremes. There's the fan base. It's the, the the pumpers that are like, hey, I'm a Trojan fan. I went to USC. I root for USC, and I'm positive about USC football, regardless. Like I'm I'm in it, you know, a penny for a pound. I'm I'm. It doesn't it doesn't matter. Like whatever. Who if it's Clay Helton as coach, it doesn't matter. That's my school. That's my team, and I'm always going to support whoever. I'm gonna there. ride with them, baby. And then there are the others that are like, wait a second, you need to have accountability. And if you are allowing, you know, the the, the standard to drop, et cetera, then you are going to be locked in to basically rooting for a loser. So and, and they find, you know, issues with with everything. There's always sort of that ability to kind of find, you know, something isn't right. It happened even in the Pete Carroll era, you know, but there would be the argument. Well, listen, you know, Pete Carroll, he didn't end his tenure at USC winning a national championship because there were things that he did. There were, you know, moves in the coaching staff and hiring certain people, so on and so forth, you know, that, you know, it led to that and we could see it coming. You know, I, I don't know if that's necessarily true. If Pete Carroll would have stayed at USC, um, you know, would they have been able to get themselves back to a national championship? Probably. I, I think so. You know, obviously the, the, the sanctions uh, would have made it much more difficult. But, I mean, if they were able to um, really get the defense back, I mean, they it really was striking out on some linebackers and some players here and there that left uh, the cover kind of empty at certain positions, which is why they end up in the Walnut Bowl or whatever the hell it was up in San Francisco and they're playing Boston College or, or somebody, and it was just kind of mediocre season for them. Um, but, you know, you, you're going to have mediocre seasons here and there where maybe you only win nine games. 
um, that was an all-time low for that coaching staff. And certainly you had people that were pointing at, you know, certain things that were, oh, this is not good. And this is why this is happening. Um, you kind of have to look more towards the middle. And I think the middle fan base would have still said Saturday was not a good game from USC. You know, they looked flat. They looked uninspired. Um, Caleb was struggling and he kind of struggled a bit against Colorado as well. But that gets into the conversation of the fragility of even the best offenses and the fact that offense is about timing. It's about rhythm. And there's a lot that can go wrong where a team comes out and they just don't click, especially when it's all about the pass. The more passive you are, the more complicated and, and there's more things that have to go right in order for the offense to play really well. Whereas if you're a little more conservative and you're just handing the ball off, yeah, there's some complexities in the run game and the blocking, but it's a little more straightforward of we're better than you. We're going to move you off the football. And certainly with defense, it becomes even more simplistic. And if you have a good defense, you are vis-a-vis going to be consistent. And we talked about fundamentals and everything last year. Um, that's something that you just kind of have to expect from USC. If this is going to be the philosophy and this is going to be the approach, we're going to outscore you. We're going to pass the ball around. You're going to, you're, they're going to do that quite a bit, but there's going to be games where, you know, Oregon state, Arizona, they're just not going to have really good nights and you're going to leave yourself open and vulnerable to losing some games uh, that you shouldn't lose. Gerard, let's keep it pushing to our Friday night light segment. And for the first time in what feels like forever, I actually was at a game. So do you want me to go first? No, I do. I want to go okay. first. Okay. Okay. Well, then you can go first. <laughs> we're at Centennial versus Roosevelt. And I know you have you were out checking out one of your uh, your big Gerard prospects, which is to say a guy you really like. Yeah, uh, somebody I think is a, a bit underrated right now. Junior cornerback LaRue Zamorano, who got to see him play against modern day at the beginning of the season. Came back down, saw him play against Roosevelt Friday. And for whatever reason, it always lines up on the schedule that I see Centennial blow out Roosevelt. And um, I mean, Centennial blows out all the teams in their league. I mean, the every time, every time the Roosevelt staff looks on the sideline, they see Gerard Martinez. They know. At a center, they're like, oh, dang <laughs> this it. One's this going to be a running clock. Yeah, this one's going to be over at halftime. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it was. It was 49 nothing. I think, at halftime. And, um, but watching, uh, LaRue, yeah, still, uh, you know, a guy that, um, you know, six, one pushing six, two lanky, uh, I still would like to see a little more from a top end speed standpoint to see how fast he, he really is like in man coverage. Um, we did put up some isolation highlights of him, uh, both against modern day and against Roosevelt. I just like how physical he is for a guy that's, you know, long, skinny, um, you know, shows good quickness. Uh, but he's just not afraid to come up and and get involved in the run game. And so uh, he was he was looking really good. Again, I think a bit underrated at this point. Uh, would like to see him at a camp. You know, would like to see him compete more during the offseason. We didn't really get to see him much in the seven on seven circuits. And, you know, he's talked about going down to USC. He's talked about doing a lot of things. Hasn't done a lot of them. He's been, you know, fairly quiet from that standpoint. But a guy that is another one of those 2025 defensive back prospects, really the 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 strength of that class, I think. Defensive back, you've got some good linebackers in that class at the top end. I don't know how much depth you have at linebacker. You know, you have a good, you know, three to five guys at the top. Um, 
you know, maybe there, there's some there's some more players there, certainly. Uh, but with defensive back, you know, you've got some good high-end players, and then you've got really good depth at that position as well. A lot of length uh, in the 2025 uh, recruiting class for defensive back. But in general, uh, I was asked this, I think, earlier in the week, maybe it was at the end of last week, you know, to kind of compare 2026 with 2025, 2024, seems like 2025 looks better. I mean, the next class always looks better, right? The grass is greener on the other side. It's like, if you feel like you're striking out as a college football fan and your team is not getting uh, the commits that they, that they want to get in that particular class, it's always, well, next year, you know, that's the beauty of recruiting, right? Next year is always, oh, there's all these guys, you know, Reggie Bush, he's going to be there next year. Um, I don't think so. I don't think 2025 has shown me that it's a class with enough marquee talent, enough game changers to really be a class where you're going to see, you know, this influx of talent into the roster. Now, certainly Julian Lewis reclassifying for the 2025 class would help that. There's really not a lot of um, big time names at quarterback in the 2025, especially locally, but even nationally. I don't get a sense like, oh, man, you know, there's there's those guys that, you know, maybe USC circles um, and, and tries to get into involved in their recruitment. I think it's really sort of Juju Lewis or bust. Um, he can help that class quite a bit. And certainly having a quarterback in any recruiting class is always going to help it. That's a catalyst. That's a guy that's sort of a off the field um, auxiliary recruiter for the coaching staff. Get in those DMs, get in those group taxes and get everybody together and sort of be a leader uh, before you're even on the team. That's always very helpful for recruiting class. So USC would love to have that for 2025 with Julian Lewis. Um, that would be an additive, but I still don't know if there's enough in that class where it's going to be this big time, amazing class. Even if you're a top 10, you know, at that point, I don't know if it would be the same as a top 10 in the 2024 class. And certainly I would say 2026 looks better than both of them. 2026 and 2027. 2027's got some dudes. Just we got to see how they develop, you know, because they could completely flat plateau. Uh, second time I've used that word, and I say qua, but nevertheless, not necessarily get a whole lot better, you know, not improve a whole lot. So we'll see, you know, what happens with the 2027 class. But 2026, um, there's some guys, you know, there's some guys in that class, like kind of across the board. Seems like a more balanced class. And that would be the class where I would say, yo. You know that if you if you get one of the top you know five classes uh, in 2026, you're getting some dudes. You're getting like a really good group of players that could you know kind of change some things for you on the roster. So we'll see. You know at that point in time, if you know what USC is doing recruiting strategy wise, if it's still you know kind of more porthole uh, filling um, immediate uh, holes, or if there's going to be you know more success. On the recruiting trail, what happens, you know, by the time we get to 2026 with NIL and the NCAA and some type of, you know, sort of universal standards, is they, they become some federal standards in terms of pay for play? You know, we'll see. You're not going to lead in mine? <laughs> I'm just letting you just, just, just leave me out to dry here. Well, I mean, with everything that I said, I feel you could like pull in a little bit of a segue there. And I say the segue would have been, well, you wanted to go see a defensive back. Uh, guarding uh, wide receivers, I went to go see one of the top wide receivers in the Southland locally in Ryan Pelham. Ryan Pelham, also known as Soldier Boy Pelham, 
<laughs> in a rivalry game, Milliken versus Lakewood. Soldier Boy. How, wait, wait, okay. Let's, let's, let's. What is that about? Where does that name come from? Is it just looks? It's actually coined from my friends at the 562.org who I used to work with when I was at the Long Beach Press Telegram. That's one of their nicknames for him Soldier Boy Pelham. It's like Soldier Boy Tellum. So Soldier Boy Pelham, that's what they call him. Okay. So, all right. I like so it. He 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 signed off on that nickname as well. So <laughs> he goes by that. So uh, look, it's an official nickname. Soldier Boy Pelham. I like that. out there. I do. Do like it, you like that? I do. I know there's something about that that's just like it's current and it's kind of funny, but then it kind of works too. So it's like good nicknames are on like multiple levels. Like they just for whatever reason. And I, I like like that. Garage so Martinez. Boy, yeah, that's sort of, that's sort of superficial. That's sort of obvious, I think. You know, even Hurricane was just like, I mean, that was just a nickname. It was, I don't know. There's really like layers to it. I think good nicknames are like they work in multi dimensions. Like you can look at different aspects and go, oh, that's a play on words, and oh, it's kind of true because it, you know, aesthetically, I kind of see it. And that this sort of works. Soldier Boy Pelham, it just, yeah, you know, kind of kind of out of pocket sometimes in seven on seven games. Like I don't know, it, it, it works. Okay, well, I I will let them know that you approve of the nickname, but Soldier Boy Pelham, very active in this game, more so in the first half because this ended up being a running clock game. I believe it was 43-0, and the offense was clicking. Ryan Pelham had three scores in the first half in, in as two receiving, including a 49-yard touchdown, and then an 11-yard rush at the end right before uh, second half or right before or as the first half ended, excuse me. And he only had six touches from scrimmage in the first half, and three of them went for scores. So a very efficient night. Also had a big kickoff return to start the game. I thought he was going to take it all the way. Ended up being about, you know, 55 yards or so. But very productive first half for him. Not a ton of action in the second half. He did score a fourth touchdown, but it was wiped off the board due to a um, an eligible man down the field. He was uh, joking a little bit that he was very mad that he wasn't able to get that score. But, yeah, he was uh, quiet in terms of the defense. Uh, the defense had, I believe, five interceptions and none for him. Wasn't a very uh, active, didn't need him a lot as one of those deep safeties to uh, do a lot in terms of coming up to the line of scrimmage and tackling. Also did not get in on that turnover fest for the Millican defense. But quiet night for him on defense, but active night for him on offense. Now, Gerard, I do want to point out one thing. A very bad penalty was thrown in this game. Uh, you've covered, obviously, a lot of high school games here. Tell me, have you seen the celebration that a receiver does this season? Or it's very popular uh, right now. But when they get a first down catch, they get up. They kind of wipe their nose and point to the oh, first down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they flagged him for that. They yeah. flagged him for that. And it was one of the worst unsportsmanlike conduct penalties i've ever seen because every kid in america does that celebration if you're a receiver or a skill guy usc players do that in the college games everyone does that and yet they flagged him and they literally stopped the game for like five minutes to talk about this this was the first drive of the game and you know ryan pelham uh does have a sort of emotional nature where he does get these penalties if you get two you can't play in the next game so he was unfairly flagged for this and uh romeo pelham the head coach his brother let those refs have it because it was an egregious call 
uh, to give a kid that call. And again, you're, you're, you're afraid that he might be in a situation where, you know, he gets a little emotional. This is a rivalry game and he might do something that gets another in sportsmanlike conduct and he's out for the next game. You know, we got playoffs in two weeks. So I think it was a very bad call, very bad call, but I just wanted to, uh, I wanted to uh, call out the rest for that because I've never seen a call that bad in terms of a, a celebration, especially one as harmless as that, in which every kid is doing it in high school football and in, and in college as well. They got to let him turn his swag on. That's all there is to it, Chris. <laughs> okay. I well, think, they were. I think uh, it, it, I, I would suspect that maybe Ryan Pelham has a little bit of a target on his back. When it comes to that, because, you know, he is a guy that can get involved, you know, post play a little chatty and what have you. And so sometimes, you know, you end up on the freaking list for the refs and they're looking mm-hmm. at you and they're trying to make an example of. And but I, I, I agree. I mean, it sounds stupid. It's just silly. It's a little bit of a gesture. I mean, I remember back in the day, you know, they made this big deal of the whole cutthroat gesture, you know, how that was really. Um, That's what I thought he did. That's what I thought yeah. they were flagging him for. I was like, okay, yeah, I, I mean, I get it. But, like, no, he literally did the nose thing. Yeah, That's what I yeah. thought it was initially. So, uh, yeah, it's just one of those things. Not a big deal. Not a big deal. Not a big deal at all. He's only been to one game this year, the San Jose State opener. Uh, his brother told me that he has been trying to get up more often, but just hasn't had the time he is a dad. He does have a child, so I assume that can get in the way a little bit, but very excited about USC's offense. He said he is okay with not wearing number one next year because obviously Zachariah Branch is occupying number one. It's all love. And again, those guys did come to see him uh, during the bye week, and he said he was able to catch up with them, just t- chat up a little bit. It was excited to see his future teammates on the sideline at his game. But Ryan Pelham, very excited about USC. Locked in. Hasn't been talking to any other schools. And I would suspect we're going to see him at a game uh, in the near future. We need to see that bird walk to the Coliseum. We need to see the bird walk to the Coliseum. There you go. I'm sure I'm sure it's going to happen. I literally have the Soldier Boy wiki page up right now. I'm just looking for you. You are obsessed songs. with this. You are obsessed with this. This is like uh, not Ryan. Uh, Soldier Boy uh, Pelham. Uh, Gerard rarely gets excited about things, and I've never seen him so <laughs> giddy about me doing a throwaway nickname of Soldier Boy Pelham. I've never seen him this giddy. It's not a throwaway. If, if he signed off on it, and it's <laughs> and it's and everybody's on board with it, it's gonna be a thing. Listen, this is the nil era. One of the most important you're already seeing dollar signs with this in this life, right? You know, that's that's the thing. It's like uh, you've got to brand it in. Uh, yeah, the soldier boy. Tell them, tell them it just works. It just works on a lot of different levels. So I, I like it. It's uh, it's funny. And I'm just looking for like different, you know, crank that is obviously like the big well, song that he made. Yeah. But that I mean, that's just kind of like ambiguous. But there's other little like songs and things. You know, I don't know much about him. I didn't listen to a whole lot of soldier boy. That's that's a little kiss you through the phone. Yeah, yeah, that that was yeah. I saw that one. I was trying to figure out a way to kind of get that into the conversation. Like, I don't know if that's gonna really work. I don't know how familiar Chris is with Soldier Boy. That was kind of like your era, though, man. That's a little oh, more. I'm, I'm very familiar with Soldier Boy. Yeah, I, I yeah. get. It. I was cranking that. I was Supermaning. I, I did yeah. all those things. I 
I realized me literally just saying that makes me sound very old. Me saying the phrase, I was soldier boying, uh, <laughs> makes me sound like I'm uh, 50 years old. I, I acknowledge that. But that's not true because, I mean, that's kind of sort of millennial, right? That's not mm-hmm. – it's not boomerish at all, Soldier Boy. I mean, I, I I remember the songs, but, man, that's like – that's background noise for me. I mean, that's not, that's not my era in terms of hip-hop. I'm still, like, latching on to the old Wu-Tang albums, man. I, I Also, I just realized I, I feel like there's people that are listening that have no idea what we're talking about when I say Soldier Boy Pelham. It's a playoff Soldier Boy Pelham, a – that's what he used to go by. Two like thousands. Yeah, his name used to be Soldier Boy. Tell him, and I don't know. Maybe that was just. A, I, I don't know. Like, there's got to be a little more to it, probably. But you know, just rhyme, sort of tell him and tell him. But now, you know, it's just Soldier Boy. You've heard those songs, folks. Even if you're old like me uh, and Ryan, you heard the Soldier Boy songs. Like that's. It's one of those like I woke up in a Bugatti type of songs you just play over <laughs> and over and over again. Remember that? Like we just like every event you went to, every seven on seven, every camp. I, I woke up in a Bugatti, and it just was like, okay, we've heard that nine thousand times now. Well, Soldier Boy, you know, Superman, and now, whoop, you know, that was like they played that all the time. They still play it. It's still a song they, they do. Play. They do. It's it's so, a throwback song now. So, but they but they do. And they play like old songs, like specifically at the Millican games, they play songs that were popular when I was in high school and it's freaking me out. And they're like going crazy for it. But I don't feel like yeah. they've, they've dropped yeah. a Soldier Boy song while I've been there, which is feels like a missed opportunity. Yeah, they may not have gotten the memo yet. You know, it might still a little be kind of an inside type of thing. But I mean, they, you know, you never know. Like you end up at a high school, like Centennial is always, they're always going to play ACDC. Because that's Matt Logan. Matt Logan loves his ACDC. His his friggin' uh, tone, his, his ringtone is ACDC. I think it's um Back in Black, I think. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you get those schools. Uh, when I was at Bonita, they're like playing Metallica and stuff. And then you go to other schools and they're like playing Michael Jackson stuff. So something they go way back and they go old school for the parents. Because like, that's the, you know, the parents are here and whatever. You yeah. know, we, it's not all about the kids. And then the kids, actually, I was going to record the DJ at Centennial. So Centennial on the far side end zone, that's where they have their student section. And their student section is just like most student sections, ranchos like this. Maybe this is an IE thing, but they are in another world. They're in a different dimension in universe from what's going on in the game. They, they, there could be it could be 70 to nothing and they could be down. And these kids are in the they're in the 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 end zone dancing to whatever song they're singing along to these songs like they've memorized every lyric they've got like a smoke machine going it's like totally like you came here for something different than actually what's going on on the field and i just i like i, I laugh they came at for it. a good they came for a good time in the they're, pit yeah, maybe they are there for like their own reasons their own agendas and um but they were playing this song that was like this there's got to be like a name for that genre that like sort of dance uh mexicana sort and i was like this reggaeton there's gotta be like a cilantro angle to this like i i should have like just i should have i recorded it and we could have had it on the podcast we would have laughed it just was so it was it was almost like the antithesis of (laughs) like it, it was like the totally upbeat energizing and these kids were just like rocking out to it and it was like 49 Nothing at halftime, and there you—I could have probably pulled 
the the student section there, they probably none of them would have known the score. They would turn around and actually looked at the scoreboard. Was there student sections when you were playing? Or of yeah, course there yeah. was student section, but what was yes. the vibe? But they weren't doing these things. No, no, not at all. They weren't nearly as like organized. The first student section I saw that was like militantly organized was Servite. Servite has a, a, you know, I believe that we can win. I believe I can win. Like that was the first time I was like, these dudes actually like, like they practiced to cheer in the game. It's kind of like the Texas A&M thing, you know, where they like go in Friday night and they do all their little chants and their stuff, you know, with the, with the ROTC people, like they, they were like the first that were like, but they, but they were different because everything was about the game. Like it was about cheering for the game. Mm-hmm. Now student sections are like, they get a DJ and those kids are just there to like dance. It's like, it's, it's, it's like, it's a like a, it's like a homecoming. <laughs> it's like a dance. Home, yeah. Yeah, there's While no, the game is going on. Yeah, there's no like slow songs, but it's all like just dancing in the stands, smoke machines. Um, yeah, uh, lights, just, just put your phones up with the lights thing. Yeah, they got the little um, the cam lights and stuff to that they wave. And yeah, they're like completely and again, oblivious. Like <laughs> there's stuff going on in the game. But these kids are they don't care. They just, you know, they want that song and the the um and it's all these songs that are like kind of like they're so radio friendly songs too that you just go oh my god like i i i can't really because even back then i wasn't really big into listening to the radio but they know all the lyrics and it's the girls that are just singing the loudest but the guys are there too you know and they're there because the girls are there they're for the girls yeah i get it i get it we're there but uh yeah so i'm glad you like the lit nickname uh, it was nice seeing uh, Ryan Pelham dominate once again. Shout out, to, shout out to uh, Tyler Hendrickson, my buddy at the 562, for coining Soldier Boy Pelham. So if you see him on Twitter, give him a follow. Great dude. Uh, Gerard, let's move into this week's game because we mentioned it several times throughout this. Get your umbrella out. Get my umbrella out. Week 7, USC, Notre Dame in South Bend. It's going to be rainy. It's going to be cold. This is going to be a nice little Big Ten primer in terms of weather for the Trojans. Some things they're going to see in 2024, USC-Notre Dame, the rivalry, playing for the Shillelagh. I nailed that pronunciation, Gerard. No, you didn't. Shillelagh? No, Shillelagh. Uh, I don't know. I've heard people say Shillelagh. Shillelagh? I don't think I've ever heard Shillelagh. Isn't it the Shillelagh? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe now, now you're gaslighting me. I don't know what's real. <laughs> Someone is going to message me. Someone is going to bring it up at the, the meetup on Shillelagh. Friday. I thought it was the jeweled Shillelagh. I thought it was Shillelagh. So Shillelagh whatever. Like you know, you're never mind. I said it with so much confidence. Now I'm a broken <laughs> man, Gerard. Three things you want to see in USC version Notre Dame. <laughs> Whoa! What a setup! Yeah, I, you <laughs> threw me off. You threw drama. me off. You <laughs> threw me off. I blame you. Okay, quick Google. Three. Google while I talk. Google while I talk. Um, I want to see him win the line of scrimmage. You know, I think the one thing last year was really nice to see is USC actually stopped the run against Notre Dame. Their defensive line played really, really well at the line of scrimmage against the run against Notre Dame. They gave up a crap load of passing yards and they made uh, Notre Dame look like this, uh, you know, airway. Drew Pine. Drew Pine. Pine. 
Um, and Notre Dame is better offensively, even though their fans will tell you, oh, we're terrible. We won't score three points. They're in that sort of um, spiraling, you know, on the ledge. Uh, USC's defense could make them look really good really quickly, just like they did last season. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, stop the run. You know, you, you, you're going to win the game if you can stop the run against Notre Dame. And they did well schematically last year against that. So you'd like to see them win the line of scrimmage, both offensively and defensively. I mean, you know, the run game was not there the past two weeks and certainly was not there against Arizona. And Notre Dame is just bigger, stronger up front. And so you got to be balanced. You know, you can't just say, oh, Caleb, when is the game? When is the game? I mean, he's going to keep you in the game, but I think the better teams, it's going to be hard for him just to carry the team and actually win all these games. So got to see some run. Got to see, you know, uh, whether it's going to be Austin Jones or it's going to be uh, Marshawn Lloyd. Somebody's got to step up. I mean, get uh, Quentin Joyner in the game. And, um, you know, the offensive line has got to be able to move people off the ball, particularly when you're getting into third and short. You know, if it's going to be raining on top of it, you're going to have to have a run game. So we're going to see. You know, USC hasn't depended on it. They haven't committed to it. Um, and now it's gotten to the point where it's a little away from them and they're trying to run the ball and they're actually getting some some tackles for losses. So we're going to have to see what they do against this uh, Notre Dame front. Um, cleanup penalties continue to clean up penalties, you know, um, offensive line, but just in general, those type of mistakes that can kill drives. And third but uh, not last, uh, no big plays in the second half. You know, beating the dead horse to death. Talked about it every week. Same thing. Can't have big plays in the second half. Listen, you give us some big plays in the first half. Okay. You know, it happens. You come out and schematically you're looking at some things and, you know, maybe the team just, you know, you can get a big play on you. It's going to happen. It's football. But you go in at halftime and you make adjustments as to what you've seen in the first half. And that in itself, schematically, you should be in a position where you're not allowing these big plays to happen. So, that is something that we've wanted to see in the last three weeks and we have not seen. And you want to see it, uh, particularly against a team that's not known for big plays. But I say that kind of, you know, almost cringing because it's like, you know, <laughs> Colorado was supposed to run the ball at all. And then they ran the ball pretty well against USC. So everyone you know, so, has their biggest day. Yeah, exactly. So some of these teams are weaknesses all of a sudden become highlights. Uh, against USC's defense. So, yeah, you want to see them be able to stop the big plays in the second half. My first thing, I want to see them start fast. You know, against Colorado, started fast. Against Utah last year, in that environment, started fast, got off to a great start. Pac-12 championship, started off great. Obviously, the hamstring thing. But USC, I think, can start fast, and I think they will start fast. And you're coming off the Arizona game where you had the worst start you've ever had under Lincoln-Riley. Three punts, 17 points allowed, one fumble. It was horrific, and you cannot start like that in this game in South Bend. So I'm expecting them to come out fast and come out swinging because that's what you want. You want to set that tone. You got out physical against Arizona. Again, you can't do that against Notre Dame. So we're going to see that happen, I think, or at least that's what I want to see happen, them come out swinging a total 180 from what we saw against Arizona. Uh, you mentioned it, you know, with your line of scrimmage, but I want to see them run the damn ball in the rain. I don't know how much it's going to rain. I just know it's going to rain. It's going to be wet. This kind of feels like it could be a game where like rally could finally lean on the run game a little bit more, but again, you know, it's going to be rainy. It's going to be wet. Do you really want to be throwing that many times in that weather? I don't know. We're going to see what happens, but this seems like a perfect game 
to finally lean into it. I'm not saying go completely to the run game, but just lean into it a lot more than you have the last several weeks. Give Marshawn Lloyd the ball. Give Austin Jones the ball. He ran well in limited time. Again, maybe you don't trust that USC offensive line, but give them a chance to set the tone in a cold, night, wet game. Let's see you run the ball. And then receivers getting separation. That was a big, big issue against Arizona. Lincoln Riley talked about it, how you know they were just a tick off. That, position was, that precision was just a little bit off, so everything was out of whack. They looked really bad. Brendan Rice was the only one who could get any sort of separation. Again, this is the number three passing attack in the country with USC, and this is number three passing defense in the nation with Notre Dame. So this is going to be good on good, head on, head on. You need to get some separation. You need to get that precision back that you lacked against Arizona or else it's going to be another very long day for Caleb Williams. And again, I don't know how much they're going to be throwing. I expect that they are going to be throwing despite the rain. But if you want to get the move the ball and you don't want to lean on the run game, your receivers better be getting open in some capacity. So those are the three things I would like to see USC do in South Bend. My first time. I'm very excited. I wouldn't mind seeing them run the ball from underneath the center more. You know, I think Mm -hmm. if you have some issues with tendencies, it's much easier to cover those when you're running under center and you don't have to necessarily offset. You don't have to do anything with your alignment so much because you're hiking the ball from under center play action and what have you. It's much more difficult for the defense to be able to eyeball what's happening with the run game. So they have to commit a little more with what's going on. Um, I don't know, you know, if that's something that USC really has, I mean, they do it a bit down in the goal line, but you don't see them do it uh, very much between the twenties, but um, that would be a bit interesting. Uh, Certainly, uh, like you said, you know, running the football, it's tough. The the thing is, and this is why, you know, this goes towards the sort of dumper uh, perspective on things and why people complain, you know, if you're one of those like, Hey man, they're six and oh, doesn't matter. It's, you know, when, when you see what's coming, and you get to this point now where you might have to run the ball. Now you have to run the ball and you have to do something by necessity on the road in bad weather. <laughs> you don't want to practice that. You don't want to make this the first game where you're just like, we're going to run the damn ball. We're going to be physical football team. Like, oh, really? Cool. Okay. Gets the better defense than you've seen uh, the whole year. And, you know, on the road in a, in a very hostile crowd. And, you know, you're going to have potentially a slick football. Um, That's not necessarily the ideal conditions to start becoming a running team all of a sudden. Um, So they got to do some things that are going to supplement the offensive line. I will say, you know, potentially early in the season where we were saying, you know, they needed to run the ball more. They needed to commit to to successive runs in games more, have, you know, certain periods where it's like, okay, we're going to we're going to give the ball to the running back like three or four times in a row. Yeah, he may get stopped for two yards in one of those carries, but we're just going to come right back and run it again and, and run it and, and really force feed the run is, you know, maybe just this coaching staff is not confident in this offensive line in terms of running the ball. On paper to me, it seems like a team that it would be better running the football than passing the football. I feel at this point, and this was something that we talked about in the offseason, 
was the move of Jonah Monheim going at left tackle, a move of necessity or luxury? Was it that Monheim had shown that he was the most athletic and he was really the best option there? Or did he become the best option because you didn't have anybody else really win the job? And it's kind of seeming like the latter. Now you've moved Michael Tarquin, who got benched in the last game over to right tackle, which is the position he played at Florida. And on the interior, you know, with uh, Gino Quinones going down, you have Pregnon playing, and he's been a bit of a mixed bag. You know, there's a lot of potential there, but you see where there's some game, there's some games where he's whiffed on some blocks. He seems like he's not as mobile as maybe they want him to be running the GT counter. Some teams have split those pulls. In, in other words, when the guard and the tackle, you actually have them pulling out of the position. You know, some of those defensive lines have just been shooting that gap really quickly, trying to just disrupt the play. And it has worked where they just kind of disrupt the play. Um, you know, your counter to that, your counter to running a GT counter in that situation, maybe run a trap play, allow those defensive linemen to shoot the gap, but then use their pursuit against them and slide in underneath. Um, there's various different things that you can do. You would hope that USC has a little more with the run game. Um, they've they've practiced more than they've shown. Um, not to try to suggest that they've sandbagged early in the season. I don't believe in that. And I don't think that's gone on. But you do have some adjustments that you can always make and you can always go to knowing that you know teams are going to practice what you do really well. You know they're going to practice your strength, what you've shown that you can do on a film. You have to have something that goes you know away from that counters that. I do think we're going to see a lot of passing, though. I think we're still going to see a lot of passing, a lot of attempts to get the ball into the middle of the field and, you know, to win some situations. That just seems to be how Lincoln Riley wants to win. And certainly when you've got Caleb Williams back there, who's the best player in college football, and like we've talked about before, generational talent. We've never, I've never said that about any other player at USC. You know, and with Reggie Bush, that was the first time I even heard that, 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 that category, that that uh, moniker on a player, like oh, he's a generational talent. It's like generational talent. What does that What does that mean? So, like all these other guys that have come through and come and gone, I, I've I've looked at that. Like, okay, what what is a generational talent? Like, what does he have to impact? How does he have to impact the game to be that type of player? And it's like, oh, you know, now all these years later, you see that with Caleb's, you're like, okay, Caleb Williams is definitely a generational talent, and so. You know, you want to keep the ball in his hands. It's hard to take the ball out of his hands. And there's questions even now, and I've alluded to this, the RPO allows the quarterback to make his reads at the line of scrimmage. And so you've got sort of two different, uh, how should I put this? This is like walls between running the football. You've got Lincoln Riley, quarterback coach, offensive coordinator who likes to pass the ball. But even if he decides, you know what, we need to run the ball here, you've got to have the quarterback that reads the situation that doesn't get out of the run also because he could see the play and go, okay, cool, get the line of scrimmage, then see something goes, ah, oh, no, 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 I got this. I can, I can, we can, we can pass here. We can get it. And he wants to pass the ball because guess what? He's also a quarterback. You know, it's just the natural inclination and ego. I can make this play. I want the ball. And so you check out of the run there. So you've got two different sort of, you know, issues that you have to get through to actually just hand the football off. And that's another thing that, you know, kind of leads to just becoming a little bit unbalanced and being heavy in one particular aspect of your offense. And so 
I don't foresee USC running the ball a whole lot in this game. They're going to try to win it as they won other games. They're going to pass the ball around. Um, they're going to do some things. They're going to have some wrinkles for Notre Dame for sure. Um, you know, maybe you see a little more of a, a screen game or what have you. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's going to be one of those things where ultimately um, they are going to have to not turn the ball over, don't have dumb penalties and get in the red zone, you know, score touchdowns and force Notre Dame to do the same. And they did last year, you know, Notre Dame stepped up and they, they, they did, you know, score and kept the game pretty close. Um, but, you know, that's, that's sort of USC football. You're playing into what USC wants to do. Even You may keep the game close and you may score more points than you have, you know, the, 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 in all the games combined the last, you know, few weeks, you're still losing, you know, at the end of the game and you're, you're still playing into what USC wants to do their strength. All right, Gerard. It's that time of the show where we get to look at what happened around the rest of college football in week six. What did happen? And maybe a look towards, and not maybe, but a look towards games coming up this weekend. But as I mentioned last week, there were a lot of great games, and some of them lived up to the billing. Oklahoma won a thrilling Red River rivalry over Sark and Texas with a last-minute touchdown to win 34-30. Alabama delivered that killing, not killing blow, but a devastating blow to Texas A&M and Jimbo Fisher. The game that they had circled on their schedule and they needed to win. Alabama won that game 26-20 on the road. UCLA looking formidable with their defense, upsetting Washington State, number 13 Washington State, 25-17. Looking like a legit defense. Louisville pulled that upset over Notre Dame. 33-20 at home. LSU survived a shootout, 49-39 over Missouri. And then Gerard, the one I've been waiting to mention all week, Georgia Tech stuns Miami, 23-20 in one of the most wild comebacks you will ever see. They didn't kneel the ball. Gerard, do the players still have love for coach? After one of the worst, <laughs> the worst ball game, end of game managements we have ever seen from Mario Cristobal. You should be, you practice all week to call the victory formation. Gerard, please, I need your reaction. I don't care about all the other ones. All I care about is your reaction to Miami losing to Georgia Tech. I got love, coach. Yeah, one of the most cringy hashtags we've seen in recruiting in a long, long time. Um, Comes back. Yeah, comes that back. is that is par for the course, Mario Cristobal. I mean, we've talked about this even when he was up at Oregon, you know, just not being a good game day coach, not being a good manager, not being a guy that really sees things um, real time. And the game moves fast and it moved a little faster than I think he was strategizing for it seems like he was just like hey let's just keep doing what we're doing let's just win the game and just keep running the ball and not taking into account you know the probabilities and the things that you can do and should do to try to give yourself uh, every advantage to 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 securing the win and did something that he's done in Oregon before and ended up losing that game um that and, and they still got a commitment after that game, by the way. <laughs> right. <clears throat> yeah, and I. Um, it might have cost them a little bit more, but it, they it still does. Know. I think, grand scheme wise, I think Miami 
football fans are like, uh, you know, he's kind of the guy that he was at Oregon. And that's not a guy that's that's winning big games. It's not a guy that's going to the national championship. He's going to recruit his ass off. Uh, they're going to have a lot of good players there at Miami. But at the end of the game, they're going to lose games against better coach teams. And that just kind of is what it is. So, you know, it's not surprising. It's kind of one of those things that, again, we've seen. Problem is that like Miami, he hasn't really gotten the ball rolling quickly enough that he's not maybe in jeopardy. Like the recruiting is going well this year, not quite like it was last year. Uh, not as much love for coach, it seems like, with the 2024 class. And, you know, you're still losing these games that you shouldn't be losing. And they're still not a good-looking team. You know, we saw that in the beginning of the year. Even when they um, they beat uh, Texas A&M, it still didn't look good. You know, just look, Texas A&M was just anemic. They're still, like, so bad offensively. It's like, what in the world is Jimbo Fisher doing? Like, what's the problem here? Um, so, I, yeah, I, I mean, Miami kind of – I think that the, the reality of what they're going to be is starting to set in a little bit. And that's going to cause, you know, some fans to kind of like say, because the problem with Miami is similar to the problem with Los Angeles is you've got a lot of uh, pro sports fans uh, that can take it or leave it. <laughs> and and if, if Miami's not winning games, they'll leave it, you know, and then and that place will be empty. And then that place will be absolutely empty. You thought the Coliseum could get empty with Clay Helton? No. I mean, Miami Stadium will be completely crickets. And so, uh, yeah, that's not really good for them. It's not good for Texas to lose to Oklahoma, even though Texas has played well and they got that big win versus Alabama. And they'll use that to recruit, you know, like, look, we beat Alabama. I don't think it goes as far for them as it did for Texas A&M. But nevertheless, they will hang their hat on that. Uh, But that loss to a rival is not good because they've got to go head to head. Uh, for a lot of Texas players with Oklahoma, the the good news there is that you know Oklahoma is not really overlapping a whole lot recruiting guys in Southern California. You know, certainly not nearly as much as Lincoln Riley did. Lincoln Riley was in Southern California quite a bit. He was getting a lot of recruitment uh, with with he's getting a lot of traction with a lot of the top players locally because of the offense he had. I mean, he had Makai Lemon committed. He had uh, Malachi Nelson committed. He had Malik Brown committed, and they had gotten some guys even previously to that. Um, Brevin Everles is not really interested in West Coast recruiting too much, and it doesn't seem they have a lot of connections and ties with that coaching staff. They want to go more toward the South and then want to recruit Texas more. So, you know, Texas, on the other hand, with Sark and that coaching staff, they do recruit the West Coast. So Texas not being good and seven when Sark kind of rearing his ugly head is, is probably good for USC recruiting. Um, now, granted, USC themselves is much – they've become much more um, – dependent on trying to go into texas and recruit which you know again i'm i'm a bit uh i'm not a big fan of i I mean i don't think that's like your 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 plan a shouldn't be in texas and it kind of feels like usc still doing that they did that with clay helton i mean their their plan a plan b and plan c and plan z was basically in texas in a lot of these situations with usc it's not quite as bad but they're still kind of putting a lot of eggs and some baskets there in the lone star state and you know, rebuilding. I mean, you got you you have to be, you know, defending back-to-back national championships to kind of get in there to where you can expect to win a majority of those battles. Ohio State has recruited Texas really well. Alabama's had some success recruiting Texas, but there's just a bunch of schools in there trying to get Texas talent out when you probably have more of an advantage to just sitting at home and, and recruiting guys locally. And again, people will say, well, you know, there's not as much talent locally as there was and what have you. 
listen, man, you only going to get 20 to 25 guys in the class. There's plenty of talent locally. Um, you, you're going to have to, between Nevada, Arizona, and California, um, you know, win a majority of those battles, I think, if you're going to consistently recruit well uh, at USC. So, yeah, this, the Oklahoma-Texas game where Texas loses probably works in USC's advantage. A&M loses a close game to Alabama. Uh, but Texas A&M right now, just offensively, they are just horrible. They're, they, and then they're not getting better. I know you got Bobby Petrino there. He's supposed to be a savior. You know, came in on his moped and he thought, you know, oh, I got all these crazy game plans. And it's just going to be amazing. We're going to be like this really exciting offense. And a lot of people said, okay, that's great. But who's going to call the plays? Because isn't Jimbo Fisher supposed to be that guy? And so we're still waiting. You know, it's uh, one thing that's really great about Lincoln Riley and his approach to offense is a i've always liked the fact that he as a kind of coordinator mindset has a coordinator on the offensive line i think that great balance for the team you know having your offensive coordinator as an offensive line coach so you 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 have eyes that are there diagnostically constantly looking at what's happening in the trenches when you as a quarterback coach and a former quarterback probably are a bit more looking at the skill players and what's happening there. Um, I like that combination, uh, how that sets up for him. Um, with Jimbo and Bobby Petrino, you've got kind of the same guy there. It's just redundancy. And it, it looks like it's just redundancy and it's just more bad for them offensively. Very anemic, not very good play from the quarterback position. Um, Draylon Miller, come on down, you know, right? So we'll see I don't know how great that NIL deal has been tested. But uh, that works for USC, you know, because there's, I mean, Oklahoma, less overlap on the recruiting trail past couple cycles, much more overlap with Texas A&M on the recruiting trail past couple of cycles. So, you know, if you're a Trojan fan, you're rooting against A&M as much as possible. And they're kind of stuck there with Jimbo Fisher as far as his buyout. His buyout is kind of ridiculous. So um, that would be something that uh, you, you know, from a recruiting ankle, the more losses for the Aggies, probably the better for USC. Yeah, that can bounce us into the slate of games for this week. Texas A&M will be facing number 19, Tennessee. So they could be on a two-game losing streak by the by the time Sunday rolls around. So we'll see if the Aggies will continue to slide or if they can change the direction of their season. The big game on a lot of people's minds and a lot of people are going to be watching. Number seven, Washington versus number eight, Oregon. The battle of the Pac-12, or at least the first leg in the battle for the Pac-12, the winner will have the uh, the big upper hand moving forward. Some tough games still left in the schedule, but this will be a big one for the Huskies, who will be hosting Oregon. Both undefeateds, both top 10 matchups. All the media attention will be on this one. Number 25, Miami. Miami deserved to be out of the top 25 after that NDA against Georgia Tech, but that's just me. But number 25, Miami will be facing number 12, UNC. And then UCLA will be taking on number 15, Oregon State, on the road in Corvallis. So a tough test for Dante uh, Moore, a young quarterback in that hostile environment. We'll see if the defense can keep it close for them in what should be a low-scoring game, but it should be a fun one as well. But those are kind of the marquee matchups for this weekend in terms of top teams going head-to-head. And obviously Notre Dame and USC, a top 25 matchup that people will be watching, but not as many good games as last week, but again, that Washington-Oregon game should be a good one. Is 
Oregon playing at Washington or is Washington playing at Oregon? I thought Oregon was playing at Washington this week. Yeah. Yeah. Did I, did I mess that up? Washington is playing at Oregon. Or, Oregon. Uh, Washington. No, Washington is hosting Oregon. Excuse me. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, that's one where, you know, we're looking at you know, the overlap with recruiting. You know, Washington, USC, not a lot of overlap there. Washington kind of looking at just different type of players, you know, a little more of a pro style, I guess, approach for them. Um, so, you know, with Oregon, there's a ton of overlap. And so you're rooting for Washington to beat Oregon in this mm-hmm. game for sure. And then, you know, USC gets Washington at home and then they've got to go to Outson. So th- there's an interesting sort of, you know, lover's triangle there. I mean, you've got this uh, going up to, uh, to, to, to Washington, which is a very difficult place to play. In fact, it's much more difficult from what I've been told by former players to play at Washington than it is at Oregon. Oregon's like a 53,000 seat stadium and it's a closed in stadium, you know, and they're very close to the field and what have you. Um, but it's just not Washington. Washington, literally the stand shake. I mean, it's like, you know, and, and they talk about the 12th man up in Seattle with the Seahawks. And, you know, there, there's some of that that goes on with uh, Washington. So that is actually kind of a good thing for USC that they don't have to go up in Washington and play. And they're actually getting uh, to go to Outson and sure Oregon, you know, they're, they're going to want to win that game. And then they're going to want to have like 900 recruits at the game versus USC. So I think the best outcome for Trojan fans is for Washington to dominate Oregon and then USC, you know, they come away and they're, they're able to beat Notre Dame and then they get Washington at home and are able to make Michael Penix just, you know, look off. You know, there's just been those games where for whatever reason, he just has not been able to be consistent throughout the season. Now I think some of that has to do with the level of competition that they're playing against. It usually seems like, the good teams they get up to play for, like the teams that are that they're they're circling on the calendar, Washington plays better against those teams than they do against like your Arizona's, you know Arizona State they lost to last season was like huh, um, some weird you know they they, they they dropped some weird games last year but they were still a pretty good football team, and I think you know they're obviously been circling this one for a long time, and so I think um, that would be the best result for for Trojan fans. Um, you know, UCLA, I think UCLA is a solid team, man. They're, they're, they, they run the ball pretty well. It's a team full of nobodies. You know, it's kind of, again, the Chip Kelly way where it's like the, the, the system is going to win out. It's, it's, it's all, uh, X's and O's versus Jimmy and Joe's. And he believes in X's and O's exponentially. Um, he doesn't care about the high school football scene and, you know, who's doing what they just, they don't, they don't. They don't recruit the same way as most other schools recruit. And so they have a, a pretty locked in uh, system and team. And it's an it's a it's a you know freshman quarterback on the road. It's going to be difficult. Um, but I wouldn't be shocked if, if they were able to pull that one out. I, I think UCLA just doesn't give you a whole lot um, to beat. You know, they become pretty good at uh, playing, you know, teams close, regardless of sort of what their style is, because they they can run up and down the field a bit, you know, and and, and be fast tempo and what have you. Um, But at the same time, you know, against the Utahs of the world, they've been able to kind of play physical football with them. So, you know, that's going to be a very good game. Interesting. Uh, Miami, I agree with you, shouldn't even be in the top 25 and, you know, potentially uh, get uh, get whooped by North Carolina. Um, you know, we'll see how that one pans out in, uh, Texas A&M. Yeah. That's a tough one against Tennessee. Tennessee has stumbled a bit offensively. They're not the team they were last year, obviously quarterback change 
and what have you, but they have looked a bit mediocre offensively. And that was a team that, I mean, they just, that was all offense for them as well. They were sort of the, the USC of the South uh, last season. You know, they were just trying to outscore teams and now they can't quite outscore teams. Uh, you lose uh, your quarterback to the NFL and we've seen them kind of struggle a bit, but Texas A&M on the other hand, I mean, again, they, they can't score at all. <laughs> I mean that, you know, that, that battle against Alabama, Alabama's got pretty bad offense right now. They, they can't really do much scoring either. That was a, a sort of a struggle to, you know, see who was going to fall into the, 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 the next touchdown, you know, who's going to make the mistake that would really give the field position and make it an easier score uh, for the offense. And for this game, I mean, Tennessee, as much as they struggled, unless they sort of, they just completely implode, which, you know, it, it's possible you could turn the ball over on the road, um, which I think they're playing at Texas A&M, correct? College Station? I believe so, yes. Yeah, so, you know, that that, that can kind of happen, but I, I think, you know, Tennessee can put up enough points that, I don't know, man, Texas A&M right now, they, they, they seem to struggle to get into the, like, you know, the three or four touchdowns. So that puts a lot of pressure on your team. You know, when it gets Alabama, they knew they could kind of play that close because Alabama just struggles offensively. Um, but I guess Tennessee, a team that can really open it up on you, ugh, that's a, that's one of those things where Tennessee, like you said, with Notre Dame going on the road, get a fast start, you know, get a couple touchdowns early, really put pressure on that opposing offense, and hopefully they crack and they turn the ball over and it just becomes a landslide. All right, Gerard, we have reached the end of the show, which means we are opening it up to listener questions. We did get a not a not a lot, but a decent amount of questions. Just a reminder, if you want to send in a question to this podcast, email us at podcast at uscfootball.com. Just make sure you put the composite recruiting podcast, 10K and Gerard, Cilantro Boys, what have you. Just identify us, identify this podcast. So it'll go to my inbox. Gerard, we are nearly pushing three hours, and listener questions historically can take a long time. Now, I'm not asking you to do You're this, telling but, me. but I'm You're saying telling respectfully, if you could have some pace with your answers, just complete, to help me out, just to help me out, Gerard. Complete the podcast before tomorrow, because, because tomorrow is fast, fast approaching. Tomorrow is fast approaching. I have about 35 minutes until tomorrow approaches. Now, listener questions could go over an hour, but I'm just, I'm not telling you, but I'm just like, you know, if you want to to go with pace, I'm going to go with the two quicker questions to start. We got this text message sent in for a question. Nelson from Scottsdale asked, for the two-star, what are the odds of landing Elijah Rushing? That's the five-star edge rusher out of Arizona, who actually decommitted uh, this week from Arizona. That's just a tough run for for the Wildcats, losing in triple overtime and then losing their highest-rated prospect. I would say not great because USC didn't even come up when Elijah Rushing was asked about what schools he's kind of looking at from uh, Blair Angulo, who talked to him after his decommitment. So I would say, as of right now, not great. Point zero. Zero, zero. Okay, I thought 100%. there was going to be a, okay. Okay, that's, there you go. That's that's about where it is. Elijah Rushing stopped considering USC a long time ago, and USC has not, to my knowledge, done anything to really reach out and try to contact him. Recently, uh, 
it's not coincidental that Tosh Lapoy, defensive coordinator, defensive line coach at Oregon, actually popped up at his game during their bye week last week. And so that's something that you don't see very often where a recruiting staff, when they get their bye week, they go on the road and they actually go to games of recruits that are committed to other schools or they are uncommitted. Nine times out of 10, the coaching staff, and this has particularly been the case with USC even going back to the Pete Carroll era, they would go to see guys that are already committed. And so I, I kind of like that strategy, though, you know, that, I mean, if you feel good about your committed recruits, like go out there and try to make a good impression, give some love to a guy that you feel like you can turn or your guy that you feel like you can get some traction in his recruitment and make an impact there to get him on campus, to get another visit, to try to get a top player. You know, don't just go see the guys that you've already got committed. I mean, they're committed. Unless you feel like that's a really good player and we think he's wavering, then, you know, go see somebody else. And um, that's what Oregon did. They went and they saw Elijah rushing. And then magically, a couple of days later, ah, you know, I think I'm going to go reopen my recruitment now and probably end up somewhere else. Gerard, our next question is another short one from Benny. When are we going to see those stud freshmen back on the field, Zachariah Branch and Douche Robinson? Well, as you know, Zachariah Branch has been dealing with an injury. He's missed the last two games. He is questionable for this weekend. I would say he has a better chance of suiting up than he did the two prior weeks. And then Douche Robinson has actually played very little but it's weird. He's been getting random snaps in the first half of games. Usually he would come in during the, the second half of blowouts. Obviously, USC isn't blowing out teams, so he hasn't been able to get uh, a lot of playing time in the second half with Miller Moss. But he has randomly gotten a couple of snaps here and there in critical moments in the first half. He seems to be more of a red zone guy. Kind of, I would assume they're using him kind of as a decoy, you know, big six foot six guy. Run, run a fade route, bring some guys over with him. So hasn't been used a lot. Obviously, he's not going to redshirt. He's obviously played more than four games. But, you know, if he's not catching passes from Caleb, they're not able to build that connection, which means we probably won't see him catching a lot of passes this season. But looks like they're going to use him more so as a decoy in terms of with that first team unit. Probably won't see him until they're they're blowing out. You won't see him making plays until the kind of they're blowing out teams and he can get some work with the the second team guys. There you go. Next question. Oh, okay. Uh, G Mart and CT. I know this is a recruiting show, but always want to get G Mart's take on things for each game. I feel like Lincoln Riley has been saving the defensive guys, Lee, Davis, Gentry, Bars, for this upcoming stretch. We'll see Saturday if this is true. Football is a copycat sport, and I roll my eyes when I hear the word blueprint. Do you think Arizona laid out the blueprint for defending USC? What's your take? CT, take it or leave it. Sam Hartman will throw for 250-plus yards, two touchdowns, and zero interceptions. Enjoy Chicago, Rich, and SD. I'll do mine first. Take it or leave it. I'm going to leave it because I actually think he'll have a turnover uh, in this game, but I would take two touchdowns and plus 250. I would take those, but I can't take the whole thing because I do think Sam Hartman is going to throw an interception in this game. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think statistically, again, this is an, or excuse me, this is a defense 
that isn't really looking to stop teams. You know, they're going to get their yards and they're probably going to get some points. Uh, they are looking for those key turnovers. And so um, that's what they're going to do. They're going to try to give him different looks and we'll just see if it works or not. Um, but in terms of blueprint, you know, versus USC, I don't think it really was much of a blueprint. There was something said by Jason Shear, who is the publisher of our Wildcat site, where he came on and he mentioned that in the previous games, Arizona's secondary had played mostly zone against teams. And it was really only USC where they showed a man look. And what they did is they put a lot of man under, but they put like, you know, seven guys, eight guys back in coverage. And there was a lot of uh, three man uh, fronts that they had that, that were rushing the passer and they were playing back and they were just, you know, playing a lot of uh, man coverage underneath and then they had the safeties over the top and uh, USC just wasn't able to get separation from man coverage, which is, you know, uh, not great. Um, I think it's, it's surprising in some situations and you did see where like a guy like Taj Washington, when I think is really hard to cover him man on, um, did break loose here and there a little bit. Uh, there were some mispasses also mm-hmm. early in mm-hmm. the game. Uh, Caleb Williams was not hitting on. And Caleb did run early on, but I think if you weren't necessarily ready for that and you were thinking you were going to get more zone, I don't think they realized that until they actually got into the second quarter where it's like, listen, man, if they're playing man underneath and they're only rushing three, you're going to run for 10, 15 yards a carry. Okay. And then at that point, it's like, you know, are you doing what uh, Utah seemed to do, which was like just let Caleb Williams run and know that he's not going to want to run all the time. He's going to hold the ball as much as possible. And when he does run, uh, basically gas him to the point where USC does some. Sometimes they, I don't know if they realize, but, you know, Caleb has a big run and you get 15 yards on a carry and they immediately want to go tempo. And then you run, if you're running the ball in a mesh read on tempo and Caleb is gassed, uh, where do you think the ball is going to go? You know, and so it's one of those things where you kind of uh, you outsmart yourself a little bit mm-hmm. with that. It's like, hey, listen, you know, you, you know, you just had a big play. I know you want to take advantage of maybe the defense reeling and going, oh, man, we just gave up this big play. But, you know, you can also sort of run yourself right into a brick ball a little bit. And so that was what Arizona did. It wasn't really that complicated. It wasn't anything crazy it was just they ran a lot of man coverage and they play towards usc's tendency to pass the ball you know they're playing man with some zone over the top and they are leaning towards usc passing the ball more downs than not even in shorter downs you know the tendency for usc is to want to pass the ball and not run the ball consecutively and i think also you know there's the tendency of sort of how they line up in the offensive backfield and whether that's going to be a run i think that's another thing you know with a team that's seen USC now two years. Um, I think they just sort of play towards that. And Notre Dame has also seen this team, you know, for another year. Um, They defensively didn't really show a whole lot last season uh, in terms of being able to stop USC. It seemed more like USC just kind of got bored a bit and let them back in the game in the second half. Defensively, they did struggle, but they they struggled as they've struggled uh, with a lot of those teams that they – dominate in the first half going into the third quarter and then they allow some big plays and one of those things where the offense is up by you know two three scores 
and they start to kind of get that wandering eye and they're looking at the scoreboard, they're looking at the clock, they're thinking, what are we doing tonight? And then the defense gives up, you know, like two scores that are under, you know, a minute and a half. And all of a sudden it's like, wait, wait, this is a football game again. Now the offense has got to restart. They got to get their rhythm again. And it becomes this, you know, the street fight. And it's like, what happened, man? You guys were up 34-14 going into the half. And now all of a sudden this team's within a score. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, looking at what Notre Dame did last year to what they can do this year and what Arizona did last year, did this year I mean, I think you could see some of the same. Um, I don't think it's going to be necessarily because it's like a blueprint. Um, I don't think it's quite, you know, what you saw BYU playing against Clay Helton and Graham Harrell dropping eight and basically saying, okay, run the ball. Because those teams could not run the ball. Those teams were not going to run the ball. And it was just a matter of, okay, we're we're just going to play kind of a prevent defense and, and see what happens. And that became the blueprint. But it became the blueprint for something that was kind of obvious because they weren't very good teams either. Um, this team is better. There's more design there. Um, do they have tendencies and are those tendencies kind of creeping and biting them in the ass? Yes. Yes. There is a little bit of that going on and they got to get away from that. And again, I don't know if this is the game where you can just suddenly snap your fingers and say, okay, we're going to run the ball now. (laughs) You know what I mean? We're going to be a great running team. Now we're going to run the ball like, you know, three, four times every series, you know, just in a row, we're just going to pound it. Oh, two yard loss, whatever. We're running the ball again. Like the last time USC had less than a five yard gain and ran the ball after that play. I mean, if it was, if it was zero, that number was zero would not surprise me. It's usually they'll run for 12 yards or run for 15 yards. And then they'll get a four yard carry because they're feeling it. And it's like, Oh my God, four yards. We get, what the hell we can't do this. What if this is USC? This is Lincoln Riley office. We got to get the ball downfield. And then they, and then you don't see the run again for like another series. And it just defensive coordinators have picked up on that. I picked up on that. I'm not a freaking genius football coach that you know, <laughs> 20 years in the in the league or, or you know, nothing like that. But you just pick up these things and you watch the team and you see the tendencies and you see how it affects you know things. And again, this year these teams are scheming and planning for that. You know, they've done that during the off season. They there there's more of installing game plan of things they've seen on film and they're like this is what we can exploit this is what we feel like we can get after and there's got to be adjustment to that there's adjustment in the offseason to okay this is our strengths and this is our weaknesses we have to be able to have things that we can diverge from our strengths that are still things that we feel like are going to be good for us that that you know we're going to be productive doing these things but they are counters to people trying to counter our strengths and then there's the weaknesses which we just got to get better at this. And maybe we can make a weakness something that's closer to one of our strengths. I mean, that's always, you know, a, a goal. Um, but, you know, you know, going during the offseason that everybody's watching that film and they know, like, if your quarterback likes to roll uh, to a certain direction and throw a certain way, if he if he does something pre-snap that gives something away, if your running backs are lining up pre-snap in a certain way, that's saying, okay, this is where they're going to run the ball or you've got an offensive tackle or a lineman that's leaning and you're going, okay, well, that means it's going to be a pass. I mean, they're looking at all these things and, you know, you had more time to figure that out going into this game, as opposed to maybe last year where you're just looking at that season and going, okay, what can we find? What can we find? Instead of, you know, all those months in the off season, in the spring and the summer. We have a question from Reggie in New Mexico. 
Dear Cilantro Boys, really enjoy your podcast and love the fact that GM really calls it like it is when it comes to the process that USC employs when it comes to talent acquisition. If USC has a season that sees them get to the CFP, I'm not confident that happens. In spite of the woeful defense, are you confident that Coach Riley will humble himself and actually make the necessary changes to the program that he himself evolves with the changing landscape? In addition to that question, do you believe that Coach Riley is looking at the recruiting and on-field success of Oklahoma under Brent Venables and it's secretly bothering him? He puts on a brave face for the public, but Oklahoma seems to be better off without him. While the nas- while nationally, Riley is still looked upon as an offensive coordinator and not a head coach with a complete football team. These are some random thoughts that I just wanted to know what you guys, what your thoughts were on. Thanks again, and keep up the good work. Last question first. No, I don't think he cares about what's going on in Oklahoma. And at this point, I mean, Oklahoma is having a good season. They beat Texas. And you're equating that win as, you know, Oklahoma having a good season without really knowing if Oklahoma is a good team because you base that on Texas beating Alabama and Alabama is not really that good of a team right now. Now, you know, in the grand scheme of things, are they top 10, top 15? Possibly, but they have a major weakness at the quarterback position. And a major weakness at the quarterback position is a major weakness in general. So, you know, they beat Alabama and Alabama and everybody is ready to crown them uh, Big 12 champions and, you know, one of the best teams that has this, uh, you know, really easy road to the college football playoff. Um, but then they had a rivalry game against Oklahoma and rivalry games are rivalry games, you know, and um, it's certainly, you know, the Big 12 is is not uh, stacked in terms of good teams. So, you know, from this point on, it's going to be an easier road for Oklahoma, but I wouldn't necessarily compare this early season, half the season uh, with what Lincoln Riley did at Oklahoma previously with getting, you know, so many Big 12 conference championships getting the team to the college football playoff i mean it's just not there yet venerables is just not even in the same conversation yet so let's just wait let's pump our brakes a little bit on that one um for the first part of the question yeah i think uh if they make the playoff there wouldn't be any changes right (sighs) right i I mean i i say that only hesitantly because I, the one thing I don't like, which it's a loaded question, it implies that Lincoln Riley has this um, long-standing history of you know going down with the ship, if you will. In other words, having coordinators or coaches on his coaching staff that were clearly not getting the job done and retaining those coaches long-term. Now, listen, the coaching profession as it were there's a lot of nepotism there because you have to have trust with the guys that you work with in various different ways and it's not as easy just to go out and say well we're just going to go and hire the guy that's the the most qualified for the job there's a lot of nuance there with personalities and again that trust level that you have uh, with these coaches and and you see a lot of connections there with prior coaching staffs etc So, I mean, just in general, you have to 
go into things knowing that's the case. It's not an ordinary, we're looking for a new manager at the McDonald's down the street. We're looking to hire a new buyer at Nordstrom's. We're, it's not that sort of job where you just, you look for resumes and you just look for the person that has the most experience and you feel can do the job for this, this, and reason. And I know people think, well, that's the way it should be. That's not the way it is. Okay. So you have to, Take that into account. And then you have to look at the fact that, you know, Lincoln Riley hasn't doubled down on, um, you know, like coaches as much as maybe other coaches have. Uh, you know, it wasn't like he couldn't get away from the Stoops era um, of defense. He did that. He brought in Alex Grinch. Alex Grinch at the time was notable, was was a guy that was on everybody's list. As, oh, you know, this is one of the top defensive coordinators in college football, particularly when he was coming from Washington state. He spent that year as a co-coordinator at Ohio state. And then he goes to Oklahoma. So, you know, that was at that time in context, looked at as a great hire by Oklahoma. And then they turn around and they make the college football playoff. Now they get blown out in both of the games that they played in the college football playoff. I think they played Clemson and they played LSU and neither of those games were close. And both of those games, the defense looked horrible. And there were people at Oklahoma that were calling for Alex Grinch to be fired then. Like, dude, we got so embarrassed. This defense looks so unprepared. Yeah, we need to make a change. But it's been a year at USC, right? And, and you had continuity there with the system. And I think, you know, Lincoln Riley wants to give it a chance. If they make the college football playoff, as Chris says, it's sort of, you know, you're kind of saying, well, they've, they've had enough success where they're getting there. I mean, you can't get to that point and show that progression because that would obviously better th- be better than last year if they're getting the college football playoff. They go to college football playoff and they get blown out. There's still going to be this argument, well, we are getting better, right? And you, you yeah. have to hit that plateau at some point where you aren't getting better and, and you're not, and you're not, and, and, it, and, and you know, it, it, for a head coach, like if you're just winning more games, that's it. That's what it's going to be about. For the fans, it becomes more about, well, we're not getting, we're giving too many yards away. We're doing this and we're doing that. And you start to look at the deeper things as to, you know, why a particular side of the football may be not playing as well or why you lose those games, even though you've only lost two of them. You know, why did we get blown out of this game, et cetera? So I think, you know, in that case, it becomes much more difficult to be able to make these sweeping changes on the defensive side of the ball if you're going to the college football playoff. And you have to make and are going to make sweeping changes. You know, I see maybe one of those coaches on the defensive side of the ball still being around if you decide to make a change at the defensive coordinator position because several of those guys have connections to Alex Grinch mm-hmm. um, that go back. So, you know, you want to bring in a defensive coordinator, A, that can bring in his own people. That in and of itself will sell the job. Because if you're saying, okay, come in as defensive coordinator, yeah, we, we got a bunch of position coaches we're good with. We yeah. just want you to come in. And, you know, that doesn't really work. You know, he's going to have his own system. He's going to have his own approach to how he wants to prepare and how he wants to practice. And he's going to want to have guys that have either a connection with him, experience with him, or at least experience in a system that is similar to his. So, yeah, if they make the college football playoff, it, it that's what you got to do, and that's going to be difficult 
to do if you've actually progressed and you've you've won more games than you did last year when the expectations weren't even to win that many games last year. However, the question becomes much more interesting if you do drop two or three games this season and you look at last year and it's a carbon copy defensively of a year before, you realize they have better talent, yet you're not seeing better results. And then you do have to look back at what happened at Oklahoma and the wins and the losses and how the team played in those years. And then you can make that greater argument for, okay, we need to make these sweeping changes. And again, talking about sweeping changes, you have to also look philosophically from the top down. Okay. Are we practicing like a team that is going to play good defense? Because, you know, I talked about it last week. And and I'll just rehash that in terms of fundamentals and what you're doing, what you're not doing, the amount of time you have in certain practice periods, et cetera. If you're a pass first team, you're doing a lot of things, throwing against air. You're not, you know, necessarily focusing so much on the contact end of football from day to day. And so, you know, philosophically, can you just plug in a defensive coordinator that was a good defensive coordinator somewhere else and expect those same results? Can you go get Jim Leonard and say, hey, you know what? He was great at Wisconsin. So you just plug him in at USC and oh my gosh, USC is going to be so great. I mean, that's the same argument that I heard with Graham Harrell. Oh, you know, you're so good at North Texas. And man, you know, if he can do that with those type of players man, he gets to USC, it's going to be crazy. You're going to score 500 points a game. And no, they couldn't even get 500 yards a game. It just, it doesn't always work like that on paper. You know, it's like, oh, we just, yeah, we just plug this in and this and boom, we're off and running. You got to have some type of symbiotic relationship between the offensive side of the ball and the defensive side of the ball when it comes to practices, when it comes to your weight and conditioning program as well. Like there's a lot of things philosophically on how Lincoln Riley wants to do things where if you make that move defensively, he also needs to make that move philosophically and make sure that he is setting his uh, his defense and his defensive coordinator up for success. And trust me, the defensive coordinator, if he's a guy that's worth his salt, is going to look at the situation as well and say, OK, can I come in here and can I do a good job? You know, am I am, am I going to have enough control and say in how we prepare to make sure we don't have a team that misses tackles, to make sure we have a team that comes up and is, is playing fundamentally sound football at the line of scrimmage, et cetera. Right. So, you know, that it, that's when the question becomes a bit more interesting. They get to the college football playoff. I'm guaranteeing you, there's a lot of stuff that's going to be glossed over. It's going to be, Hey, we won more games. Yeah, I know we're still giving up 45 points a game, but guess what? We're scoring 48 points a game and that's all that matters. We've won. And you may say, well, that is ultimately not going to win you a national championship, but you got to have that argument once you get to the college football playoff and you lose those games. And our final question, question, question. Your question, question, it's a side quest. Calls comes all the way from Texas from a, a fan named Jack. Hi, guys. I'm a big fan of the show and have been listening since the first episode. Gerard, do you want to take a guess what number episode this is? <laughs> um, just, just I, what, what number pops uh, in your head? Sixty. Seventy-two. This is oh, our seventy-second okay. episode. So thank you, Jack, for listening since day one. We really appreciate that. I wanted to ask how certain coaches can recruit at a high level, even when they don't have the results on the field. For example, Steve Sarkeesian recruited at an elite level, both at <laughs> 
even though he has never hit the 10 win mark. Mario Cristobal, Lane Kiffin, and Jimbo are all other coaches that come to mind with recruiting that far outweighs on the field performance. There are multiple part questions, but that is the first one. And I thought it was an interesting one. Uh, Gerard, you uh, hazily uh, whispered hazily. NIL. <laughs> hazily. Uh, <laughs> are you considering uh, quote unquote, late. Uh, unofficial, the words are starting to slur. Unofficial <laughs> NIL from back in the day. Because the coach that comes to mind when I think of this question is Ron Zook. Yeah, yeah. Who uh, could recruit the hell out of anyone. Yeah, but. Zook was a grinder. Zook. Um, he was a guy that brought in his cell phone to the shower and was making calls when he was in the shower. I remember he bragged about that, which I don't know. I mean, come on, man. How long are you in the shower, bro? Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's something else going on there. Um, you have some of those. And Mike Loxley was a guy that, you know, could could get some. I guy, know. You know recruit, I know. Recruit over his head. That is like you had some of those guys that pop up here and there. Um, but not many. And, you know, Mark Cristobal won some games at Oregon, right? So you can't, can't just look at him and say, oh, you know, he, he, he was, you know, like FAU Mario Cristobal. No, he, he won games at Oregon. Now, Oregon, Nike supplements Oregon and their recruiting and their football and everything else they do. We, we know that for a fact, right? So it's like, you know, they've got this whole other staff basically. Um, Chip Kelly was a great recruiter at Oregon. Okay. And then look at him at UCLA. That's all you need to know. Steve Sarkeesian. Yes. I mean, the argument with Sark, he recruited above his head at Washington um, and recruited well at USC. But I think with him, it was always about like he knew how to sell the rebuild. He knew how to sell. Oh, we're, you know, we're turning things around here. Um, That is a matter of um, effort, engagement. Uh, being just smart, you know, Urban Meyer was a, was a, was a very good recruiter as well. Very hands-on um, and, and just kind of knowing the process and knowing the people that you got to plug in with and, um, and moving and shaking. Right. But, you know, for the most part, the guys that have been really good recruiters long-term have been the guys that have been winners really, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, Lane, you know, what's, is, is Lane really like killing it right now in recruiting? I don't think he's really been all that impressive at Ole Miss because he's not winning a lot of games and he hasn't really been able to win a lot of games. You know, he's kind of a coach that is um, in that sort of seven, eight win category uh, most of the time. And a guy that, you mean, he does prioritize recruiting quite a bit and they're going to get after it, but yeah, if you don't win over time, it becomes more and more difficult. And so, yeah, you may steal a guy here. You may steal a guy there. Um, and these coaches, they, you know, if you're, you're prioritizing recruiting, you're going to cut corners, but you're also going to know, like from a staff standpoint, what a re- good recruiter looks like, you know, who's got the connections here. You know, I'm making sure I got guys on my staff that have connections in certain areas, certain schools that, you know, we're going to get these kids on campus and we're going to know what's going on. We're going to have our finger on the pulse in that particular area of recruiting. And so, you know, those staffs have those those recruiters on them. I mean, what did Sark go and do when he was up at, at, at Washington? He went and got Tosh Lapoy because Tosh Lapoy was a good recruiter at Cal. Now, was Cal like the recruiting classes? Were they top 10? Were they top 15? No, 
I don't know if they were even top 20 or 25 nationally, but he did get some guys. You know, he was able to pluck guys here and there that you wouldn't normally think Kyle could land. There's only maybe a guy here and there, but it still was a guy here and there. And you get him to Washington, you've got more resources. And all of a sudden now, you know, you've got a guy that's becoming an elite recruiter on your staff and you're prioritizing those types of coaches as opposed to maybe an older coach has been around that's going to be a good coach he's going to develop your guys you're going to have a sound scheme but you know what he's over kissing the ass of 17 year olds he's not going to be calling them every day he's, he's just that's not going to be how he's programmed so that's why a lot of the younger coaches and, and guys like that they they do recruit well at least out of the gates like they get that new job and it's like man we're changing it around we're back we're gonna do this we're gonna do that you're our guy you know our first really wave of recruits the whole class is gonna play early you're gonna get 80 receptions as a freshman all that stuff you know and they kind of drum up that interest um but over time it starts to fade a bit and then they're not in the conversation so much as they were maybe the first two seasons um, that they were, you know, head coaches. So again, I mean, I think with Lane, that's a good example of like kind of sort of faded a bit at Ole Miss. Um, if he's able to parlay into some other, you know, uh, a gig and it's a good gig, he'll be recruiting like crazy out of the gates again. You know, um, if it's a step down, then it's, you know, obviously a step down for him. Um, but, uh, I think, you know, with those names, that's what comes to mind. Uh, it's, uh, guys that prioritize recruiting, uh, they are young and they're good recruiters themselves, um, and they are going to find the right people to be on their staff to make sure that um, they are, you know, at the precipice of of the recruits that they need to 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 lock in to to have those statement type wins on the recruiting trail. And the final two parts of these questions is part two of the question: How do some coaches such as Lincoln Riley consistently win ten games and yet? end up outside of the top 10 in recruiting part three what is the realistic expectation for this class of 2024 and who are some guys that can help boost class rankings to look at the part three we talked a little bit about that but it's going to take some flips a guy like draylon miller obviously justin now is not going to be a big boost but it will be a flip nonetheless but it's going to take some flip guys because as gerard mentioned USC is kind of doubling down on their board. They're not offering a ton of new guys. So I, I don't know what the realistic expectation would be because I have no idea what the – it all depends. If Does USC run the table here? Does USC get to the college football playoff? If, let's say, they do take one loss, get to the college football playoff, I would expect them to firmly be in the top 10, maybe like eight or seven. If they you know were to go undefeated and get to the college football playoff, I would put them in the top five. You're talking about recruiting class-wise? Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I, I, I think top 10 is going to be a struggle. I think it's possible if they get to the college football playoff. And like you said, there's got to be some flips here because there's just there's not enough guys uncommitted, quite frankly, that they're recruiting or have any type of relationship with that they're going to be able to all of a sudden close, you know? Um I think that top 10, yeah, would have to be you're you're winning out here. Um, Maybe you could still drop a game, but you really, yeah, you have a lot of momentum and you're able to get back into the conversation with guys like Chris said, Draylon Miller. I mean, there's, you know, Jericho Johnson, defensive tackle out of uh, Fairfield, California, USC still involved. 
Um, that's that's a name. That's a possibility. Uh, but, you know, there's other guys like, I mean, you could say, you know, maybe you, you circle the wagons on a DeAndre Carter or Brandon Baker. Um, numbers wise, you could argue, well, USC doesn't need to go down that route. But, I mean, there are guys locally that they've already missed out on that you could circle the wagons and try to get back in those recruitments. But you got to beat Oregon head to head for some of those guys. Some of those guys are committed to Oregon. You know, you got to beat Washington. You got to, you know, beat the Pac-12 teams. And then, you know, towards the end of the year, you're playing against UCLA at home. UCLA is probably going to be in the top 25 and you're able to kind of showcase how you're ending the season. Then you get a bye week. And this is where there's some strategy here. And it's strategy uh, from the standpoint of, you know, a lot of people said, oh, you know, that bye week is so early for USC. They don't really get a bye week until the end of the season. Yeah, but the end of the season is, I think, what, November 18th for them this year because their bye week is actually kind of at the end of the season. So they're going to get an extra week to be able to, A, um, prepare for the conference game if if they are in the conference championship. Uh, B, they're getting an extra week to go out on the road and recruit. And that could be big because that's when you're starting to get into in-home visits. And so if it lines up properly, you know, Lincoln Riley could come away looking like a genius and, and very smart in um, being able to have that extra week. Because, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, back in 2016 where USC missed the conference play or excuse me, the conference championship. But uh, we're still among one of the best teams in college football and they had a really good end of the season and we're playing really well in November. They got an extra week because they weren't in the uh, championship team, uh, championship game of the play of the Pac-12, and it gave them that extra week to bring in visitors. And it was like that was big for them. That was really big for them. And it was a week that they didn't have to play, and they could you know nurse some injuries and what have you. And so uh, that 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 could line up really well for USC at the end of the year from a recruiting standpoint. And I mean, again, you only gotta grab a couple guys here and there, you know. Um, they're probably going to have to be, again, commits somewhere else. And if you're dealing with the board, uh, most of those guys that you think they would have a shot at, unless it's, you know, some situation where it's just like a guy that didn't come in on an official visit, you offered and you kind of recruited early, but committed to some other school. And it's just like, you know, like a running back prospect that, you know, it's like, boom, he, he, he went to Ohio State, he went somewhere else. Um, it, it's probably going to be a guy that's already officially visited. And so, you know, that's where NIL comes in and that's where getting a guy on an unofficial visit that's still like a big time impactful visit weekend for like UCLA. That could become huge. Get them in for the bye week. That could be huge. You know, you could have a group of like five, six guys for an official visit. But, you know, will that happen? You know, is, is, is that how it's going to play out for USC? At this point in time, I would say no. I, I think kind of what you see is what you get. Um, but there's always that potential that that could happen. And there are some things there that would uh, that give them an opportunity to really um, to strike if the iron was hot. Jack, I knew asking that final question would take us into Thursday as it has done. But you have been listening since day one, episode one, 71 up. 72 down when you listen to this. So I had to get this question for you. I had to get this on the air for you. So I appreciate, we appreciate you listening to this show. And Gerard, that's going to take us to the end of this show. Two things. One, very quickly, you were correct. It is pronounced shillelagh. 
I was uh, very off base. Uh, the jeweled Shalali. So kudos to you. You get a point. Well, I think uh, I said Shalala, so I'm actually not like completely right. I just would you just would you just take it? Take the compliment just and just run with it. It's already Thursday, and I have no time for your nonsense. Yes. And the last thing, I actually forgot to mention it with the recruiting angle, the USC Arizona recruiting angle. But I just needed to give a quick shout out to Annie Hansen, the director of recruiting for USC. She had emergency surgery to have her appendix removed. After the Colorado game, had to leave the Colorado game, go to the hospital to have emergency surgery to get her, her appendix removed. So I did not expect her to see her on the sidelines of the USA game. But there she was next to Justin Taunau and his family playing point person for his official visit. She was limping. She wasn't 100% clearly, but she still was grinding it out because work had to be done. Official visitor needed to be taken care of. So I just needed a shout out Annie Hansen for showing up and grinding after a, uh, a tough surgery. Annie Hansen, who on the sidelines is the antithesis of Gavin Morse. If you ever watch Annie and you see her on the sidelines, she is intense. She is, she is locked in. She's like, let's go, let's go. Come on, let's go, Phyllis, let's go. And then you look at Gavin and Gavin's giving high fives and he's laughing and he's falling over people. But they actually caught him Literally. on film. Yeah, they caught him on film. Tripping over Prophet Brown. Got, you know what? That's almost how I broke my shoulder at the Rising Stars camp. It was one of those situations where I tried to jump over uh, Jordan Campbell, who ended up on the sidelines and clipped my heels and ended up on my elbow and it shot my uh, humerus into my shoulder joint. But that's a story for another podcast. Story for another podcast. And maybe that podcast will just be as long as this one. But I hope you can get some enjoyment out of this episode. It was a jam-packed episode. And I hope it gets you through your travels to Chicago if you were going out to South Bend. We will be doing a meetup on Friday, so maybe you can talk to me about this episode when you're there. Again, I am Chris. That is Gerard. Thank you for listening, and we will catch you next time on Composite Two Star Recruits. That leopard sucks! <laughs>